Good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 159 of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where there is indeed some new devilry here. But is it devised for our welcome, or is it devised by us for your welcome? Ah, <laughs> yes. We're going to let you folks decide. So go ahead and pull up a bench in the common room, and we'll be right there. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, whose streaming mane kindled and blazed behind him. Who writes these things, man? (laughs) That would be me. But at least that puts me in a position to give a definitive answer to that persistent question. Well, yeah, but it means you're a demon. Well, that is a problem. (laughs) And it's also going to make everybody start asking if you have wings, but... Maybe I do. They're vestigial. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, though. No. No, all in good time. And speaking of good time, we're going to try and make good time tonight by just skipping an intro segment altogether and going straight to our discussion. We've just got a lot to talk about today, folks. We really do. We've got a lot to talk about tonight. So we're going to get straight to the book because we really do love the books here at the Prancing Pony Podcast. We bring you other Tolkien stuff from time to time, but at heart, you folks know, Alan and I are fans of Tolkien's books and books about Tolkien. Mm -hmm. That's what we love. Yep. And as you know, we read a lot of books in preparation for this show every week. And if you'd like to get your hands on a book that we've mentioned, you'll want to check out the official library page of our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. There we have links to every book we've mentioned on the show. And there's a lot of other stuff on our website, too. Show notes and book links specific to each episode, outtakes, Prancing Pony ponderings, and some other little extras. You'll also find a link to our new online storefront at teespring.com stores PPP, where you can find shirts, mugs, stickers, and other Prancing Pony podcast gear. So please be sure to check that out. Definitely. Now, before we do get to the book, we wanted to let you know that today's episode of the Prancing Pony podcast is sponsored by the Music of Middle-Earth podcast. Yes, it is. Jordan Rennells has his own Tolkien-related podcast that he's really excited to share with all of you, and frankly, we're really excited about it, too. Yeah, we are. Now, Jordan's a musician and a teacher. You've heard from him before on the show, and he's beginning a podcast that explores Tolkien and Howard Shore's music from the Peter Jackson movie adaptations. He's exploring how the many themes are built— the emotions and ideas from Tolkien's writing that inspired them, and also some history to go along with it all. Mm -hmm. So go look for the Music of Middle-Earth podcast wherever you listen, and be sure to subscribe. Now follow him on Instagram at Music of Middle-Earth, and on Facebook at Music of Middle-Earth podcast. Now, let's join the company as they stumble in the dark on their way to a fateful meeting. Mm. We'll be reading just about every word in the rest of the chapter because it is so dense with action and meaning, so stick around and pay attention. Indeed. And I'm going to go ahead and get us started. Yeah, please do. And I am picking up today right where we left off in the last episode. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They now went on again. Before long, Gimli spoke. He had keen eyes in the dark. I think, he said, that there is a light ahead. But it is not daylight. It is red. What can it be? Gosh, muttered Gandalf. I wonder if that is what they meant, that the lower levels are on fire. We can only go on. Soon the light became unmistakable. It could be seen by all. It was flickering and glowing on the walls away down the passage before them. They could now see their way. In front, the road sloped down swiftly, and some way ahead, there stood a low archway. Through it, the growing light came. The air became very hot. When they came to the arch, Gandalf went through, signing to them to wait. As he stood just beyond the opening, they saw his face lit by a red glow. Quickly, he stepped back. There is some new devilry here, he said, devised for our welcome, no doubt. But I know now where we are. We have reached the first deep, the level immediately below the gates. 
This is the second hall of Old Moria, and the gates are near, away beyond the eastern end, on the left, not more than a quarter of a mile. Across the bridge, up a broad stair, along a wide road, through the first hall and out. But come and look. They peered out. Before them was another cavernous hall. It was loftier and far longer than the one in which they had slept. They were near its eastern end. Westward it ran away into darkness. Down the center stalked a double line of towering pillars. They were carved like bowls of mighty trees, whose boughs upheld the roof with a branching tracery of stone. Their stems were smooth and black, but a red glow was darkly mirrored in their sides. Right across the floor, close to the feet of two huge pillars, a great fissure had opened. Out of it a fierce red light came, and now and again flames licked at the brink and curled about the bases of the columns. Wisps of dark smoke wavered in the hot air. Oh boy, let's get started then, shall we? Mm-hmm. Boy, we are right into the thick of it, aren't we? We really are. There was a reason why we went a little long in the last episode in yeah. terms of the chapter split. You know, we didn't do it right in the middle, and it was because we knew there was so much to do here, and we just yeah. hit the ground running. We did. So we get second sentence or third sentence. He had keen eyes in the dark. Let's just yeah. make this official. He has infravision. That dwarfish I mean, infravision, yeah. Yeah. No, very special. And I, and I know it's dark vision now in all the later editions of I D&D. Know. I know. I got to remember how I grew up, right? I'm old school. I, I still yeah. think of it as infravision. Yeah, same here. Fine, fine. Gandalf observes fire. Gosh. Yep. Uh, the air is growing hot, <laughs> flickering on the walls. I, I know that word Sorry, is so folks, we're laughing say. because there's, there's going to be a blooper. If you haven't heard it by now, <laughs> you'll hear it shortly. You'll have to take a look at that. That black speech word for fire is very fun and also very difficult to say. Very difficult. <laughs> that G-H combination is yeah, just... Yeah, that gosh. Gosh. Yeah, I can't gosh. That's, that's why I try to give it to you all the time. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, you know, you are our resident it's what I get for nerd. being the word nerd. Right. Yeah, your fault. But yeah, I mean, the hot air and the flickering on the walls, it's like it's like all the signs of the fire until yeah. before they actually see the before fire. Before the yeah. actual fire is seen, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting because then we get the word new devilry, which again kind of conjures up these images of flame, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but this yeah, phrase that is, of course, given to Boromir in the films is something that Gandalf says. Yeah. New devilry devised for our welcome. Mm-hmm. And I think it's easy to read way too much into that word considering that they're about to be confronted by an actual demon well, demon yeah um you know and and i think you talked about how boromir kind of delivers that line in the movie and that he's kind of brooding and really dark when he says it and that does kind of reinforce the idea that he might be foreshadowing the balrog mm, but mm-hmm. i just want to point out that according to the oxford english dictionary devilry just means like a wicked act or yeah, yeah. evil or evil doing you know, mischief uh, reckless yeah. mischief exactly so mm-hmm. it, it really is referring more to the orcs and their attempt to trap them with this right. fire which is what's going on but it's i don't not... think it's an accident that that tolkien used the word devilry as opposed to there is some new mischief evil here yeah you're probably right about orc that mischief here right you probably are right about that uh, that's yeah. fair that he chose is fair. it for that double meaning i think yeah, yeah you, you probably thing. are right yeah. implication yeah but gandalf at least has his bearings for sure yeah now. he knows where yeah, now are. we know exactly where we are right yeah first first deep. first deep we've gone a little Below too far we're in the second probably hall. just yep. as well that we have as it turns out but yes <laughs> yeah right it ends up working out well for them that thing went yes, too far yes it does yeah. yes it does and it's not too far from the exit is it no you know we just have, no, to, they go have to go east east to the end yep. of the hall uh mm-hmm. so gandalf says on the left so they must be coming from the north side they're of the coming hall. in through the north yeah right so they go to the east and then across a bridge, up a stair, and then through the first hall and they're out. 
Across the bridge, up the stair, along the wide road, through the first hall, and then we're out. Right. That's it. That's all there right. is. That's all there is. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, and by the way, there's a lot of orcs shooting at you, and there's a devil. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So we're done, man. We're out. It's We're as good as done. Yeah. High fives all around, bro. All right. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, no. No. We're not out no. yet. Now, if you're really curious about kind of what this might look like, Karen Fonstad's Atlas of Middle-Earth, which is a reference that we go to all the time and we've recommended over and over, has a really clear illustration of this uh, in that atlas. So be sure to look that up if you have that book handy. Very cool. So now let's take a look at the space that they're in. So as you Mm -hmm. said, they're coming in from the north. They're near the east end of what's obviously a very large hall. Yes. uh, That we, We see that it runs away into darkness to the west, so they can't even see the other end. No. And there's this double line of pillars. That I love this description, the fact that they're carved like the bowls of trees, which are basically trunks of trees. Right, right. Big trees with boughs sort of upholding the roof. Oh, beautiful. They're smooth and black. And because of the fire, they're right. mirroring this red of the flames. Right. Really gorgeous image. It really is. Now, gorgeous and fit- grim. Like, you know, it's like, it's, it's kind of, it's creepy gorgeous. You know, it's not, yeah, it's not beautiful. No, no. And there is a reminder, though, that this was once truly a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now true. that beauty is marred by the reflection of the flames and all the things mm-hmm. that are happening in there, including this massive fissure of fire that mm-hmm. would have blocked their path had they come from the other direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means that the fissure must be running north to south along the width rather than the length of the hall, and that it is to the west of where they're coming out. Oh, so right. if you imagine them yes. coming in from the north into a hall that is an east-west running hall, right? this fissure would be running cutting across the middle running north south right running cutting across south, the middle yep. to mm-hmm. the west of where they entered so right that's why it would have blocked their path but doesn't now bisecting across the long right bisecting uh, the long across axis long, of cutting the it into two mm-hmm. long halves yeah yeah that's correct right very interesting and yeah amazing luck if luck you call mm-hmm. it that <laughs> they managed to come out on the right side of this fire boy you're not kidding that would have been a very short story yeah, <laughs> Man, that's Company the end of the comes book, to folks. a fiery end. The Balrog yeah, gets Balrog the ring. had a snack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Durin's Bane gets the ring. <laughs> Durin's Bane versus Sauron in the next book. That would be kind of cool. Wouldn't I would it? like to read that. Yeah, yeah. The only problem is I don't. I still don't want. I don't want to read the third book about right, what happens where to the winner ends up taking yeah. everything else out. Right. Yeah. Well, for now, they're on the right side of the fire, or at least they Correct. think they are. And the drums are continuing to pursue them. Yeah, that's like the uh, two paragraphs in the rest of this chapter we're not reading. <laughs> right. The drums. Yeah. It is, isn't it? This is like it all really we're is. not going to read. I'm pretty much sure that's it. I'd have to double check, but I, I think there might be one more paragraph. Nope, that's it. Those are yeah. the only two paragraphs we're not reading. But one of them is mostly just doom dooms. So just go yeah, back to the last episode if you want to hear us read some more of those. Exactly. And they're hearing all these, not only the drums, but also these cries and horns from the west end of the yeah. hall. Yeah, like they heard earlier when they were in the chamber mm-hmm. of Mazarbul. Mm-hmm. So, all right. I'm going to go ahead and pick up there. Uh, this is the, the last race. Now for the last race, said Gandalf. If the sun is shining outside, we may still escape. After me. And I should apologize, by the way, for my Gandalf voice tonight. I'm, you probably can tell, folks, I'm getting over a cold. It does give me the advantage of that sort of Prancing Pony podcast after dark voice. But unfortunately, it, it also gives you a very nice Gandalf is really weary voice. So I yes, know it's painful, which is fair. But yeah, yeah. But, but thank you for all you patient. do for this podcast because I know it, I know it can't <laughs> the, feel good. The show must go on, man. <laughs> he turned left and sped across the smooth floor of the hall. The distance was greater than it had looked. 
As they ran, they heard the beat and echo of many hurrying feet behind. A shrill yell went up. They had been seen. There was a ring and clash of steel. An arrow whistled over Frodo's head. Boromir laughed. They did not expect this, he said. The fires cut them off. We are on the wrong side. Look ahead, called Gandalf. The bridge is near. It is dangerous and narrow. Suddenly, Frodo saw before him a black chasm. At the end of the hall, the floor vanished and fell to an unknown depth. The outer door could only be reached by a slender bridge of stone without curb or rail that spanned the chasm with one curving spring of fifty feet. It was an ancient defense of the dwarves against any enemy that might capture the first hall and the outer passages. They could only pass across it in single file. At the brink, Gandalf halted, and the others came up in a pack behind. Lead the way, Gimli, he said. Pivot and Merry next. Straight on and up the stair beyond the door. Arrows fell among them. One struck Frodo and sprang back. Another pierced Gandalf's hat and stuck there like a black feather. Frodo looked behind. Beyond the fire, he saw swarming black figures. There seemed to be hundreds of orcs. They brandished spears and scimitars, which shone red as blood in the firelight. Doom, doom, rolled the drumbeats, growing louder and louder. Doom, doom. Well, there we go. There we go. My goodness. What a scene, huh? Oh, it's it's just ramping up. This, I mean, I think mm -hmm. everybody can probably remember their first time reading this book. And yeah. the way this scene just grabs you, it is... It's probably the longest stretch of pure action that we've seen in the yeah. book up to this point. And pages and pages of something that really only takes seconds to actually, you know, take place. Yeah, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. It's like it's Tolkien is really kind of like zooming in, kind of taking mm -hmm. the laser focus on this small span of time and yeah. really spending his time describing it for us. And it yeah. makes it so powerful. It really does. Now, let's go back to the beginning of your reading. And sure. Gandalf reminds us of something that it's it's good for us to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah. Especially because it's about to be overturned in a big way in the next book. <laughs> yes, it will. That's true. That that we might escape if it's still daytime. Because remember, right. orcs don't like daylight. At least no. typically orcs have not liked daylight. Right. It is going to become a thing pretty mm -hmm. soon that yeah. that there are new breeds of orcs that are able to run in the daylight. But, uh, orcs yeah, 2.0. I mean, Mm -hmm. Orcs 2.0, exactly. But in today's patch, we've added, uh, we've we've decreased we've the penalty <laughs> for sunlight exposure. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. Oh man, the they buffed the orcs, man. Yeah, exactly. Orcs need a nerf. All right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the the world we're still in. They they yeah you know as far as they know, we might escape if it's still daytime. We we see mm -hmm. some of this in the Hobbit too, don't we? Right, we um, do. When they finally escape from under the mountain, the the mm -hmm. goblins don't want to follow them. No, they don't. And one of the things that we find will actually make their escape a little harder is that the distance is greater than it had looked. Mm. This is a massive hall. This is huge. So as Gandalf yeah. goes and runs as fast as he can, you see the camera sort of zoom out and this little <laughs> making barely any progress across this huge hall. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just massive. Yeah. yeah. Just a reminder of how big the dwarves make places, which is funny when you realize that they are the stunted people. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They like a lot of room. They like leg they room. They do. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't need as much leg room, but they, they like more. Yeah, I don't know why they make these places with such massive headroom, but yeah. I, I know. I don't know. Is it a complex? I don't know. Uh, maybe. Probably a little not. Napoleon complex, yeah. Could be. Maybe so, yeah. Little little inferiority complex there. 
Could be. Well, anyway, back to the story. They're spotted, unfortunately. Yes, they are. Yes, they <laughs> the are. The orcs, orcs can see them. Right. They may not like the sun, but they still have eyeballs. They still have eyeballs. And they are on the wrong side. So, you know, the, the fire is between them. Boromir, of course, is, as well, ever, impetuous. Yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, we got this. Yeah. Um, a little bit premature. Yeah, uh, he needs frankly. to take something for his premature satisfaction. <laughs> See a doctor for that. <laughs> Thank goodness he's right, though, right? I mean, really. Well, and that's and that's true. He's right, but but again, they're not they're not out of there yet. I mean, no, no, not even needs... close. And again, I'm not going to let go of Boromir for his impetu impetuousness no, or impetuosity. impetuosity. What's the impetuosity? What's the, yeah. yeah, that's the. Downfall. I think I think so. That is it the sounds good. You can almost see him turning around, putting his thumbs in his ears, and waving his fingers. Na 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 na. You're like the French knight in Holy Grail. Yeah, exactly. Go now away before I touch you a second you. time. <laughs> you silly yeah. bedwetting orcses. <laughs> so there's uh, there's a bridge near, right? Yeah, yeah. The bridge, uh, they're going to go across it, but of course Gandalf warns them that it's narrow and dangerous because yeah. apparently you don't want to be running at full like speed. Of... Yeah, and apparently not only do dwarves like a lot of space, but they don't uh -huh. like rails, right? Apparently not. Parapets, rails, curbs, none yeah. of those things come to mind. This is definitely a, um, a workplace hazard. I think <laughs> bit, if this were built yeah. here, we'd be calling OSHA over this. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, you know, normally you're not supposed to be running in the workplace, but, you know, normally well, no. you're not being pursued by orcs and, and gosh. A demon. gosh. Gosh. I'm not even going to try that with my voice, by the way. I you don't shouldn't. want to know what You should not. So we see this, this danger, this uh, really big, big chasm from Frodo's perspective. We'll see this a lot, uh, specifically over the next few chapters, where mm. Frodo sees this. You know, we're, we're constantly being brought back to his perspective. This massive chasm crossed by a 50-foot span of stone. This is no small thing. This is right. 15, 20 meters wide. Yeah. There's not a rail. There's not a parapet. It's only wide enough for one person to go across. You make one misstep and you are gone. This is You're an ancient defense. The, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Turin might have done well to pay attention to this. <laughs> to the chasm just, part of it? Yeah. To the, to the, well, not just to the chasm, but to the whole idea of a bridge that only can be passed in single file. Oh, good instead point. Instead of, yeah. I don't know, some massive so instead of a giant bridge dragon that would allow an person. army. Yeah. To yeah, cross that would therefore allow a dragon to cross. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking, just thinking. So, well, sadly, Turin's long gone. <laughs> yeah, he is. I don't know that he got a chance to see the uh, architectural plans for because of Doom. No, no, sadly. So, Gandalf still leading the party here. He sets the order for them to go across. Well, Game yeah, don't first. take him away from the leadership role quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> Foreshadowing. I know. Come on now. Spoilers. All right. So Gimli, he wants Gimli to lead the way because, again, in for vision. Right. Pippin right. and Merry next, probably just to get mm -hmm. them out of harm's way as quickly as possible. Probably. I mean, I think that's the thing. He First, he's sending the one across who's most likely to succeed, Gimli. He's mm -hmm. a dwarf. He's got good footing, low center of gravity. He's probably used to this sort of thing, even if he's never been to this particular bridge. Um, followed by the ones who are, frankly, less likely to make it and not as helpful in a fight if one breaks out. Mm -hmm. So it, it wouldn't have made sense to, say, send Aragorn across first or, or, or Legolas. Right. You know, keep the warriors here. Yeah. And, and keep the ring bearer close. 
because you don't want him to get across and then get grabbed by somebody else. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this makes sense to send Gimli. Probably and want Frodo Mary in the middle, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, protected, the most protected. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't want Gimli to leave, but who else is going to lead the way? Right. He's the best one to lead. He's the one who's most likely to make it across without falling. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm thinking Legolas, because we don't get the rest of the order, do we? No, we don't. Just Gim- no. Gimli, then Pippin and Mary. I'm thinking right. maybe Legolas after them. Maybe, because he can at least shoot from range, right? Exactly. Then maybe Sam and Frodo. Yeah. And then uh, Boromir, the men in the back. And then Gandalf, right? And Gandalf, yeah. We know for sure that Boromir and Aragorn and Gandalf are the last three, because That's true. Boromir yeah. and Aragorn are the two that turn around. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we'll get to so that. <laughs> we will get to that very soon. Foreshadowing. Tonight on the Prancing Pony Podcast, where the foreshadowing actually involves shadow. Oh, I'm sorry. But only one I'm really, shadow, not four really shadows. Sorry, not sorry for that. Well, oh, okay. I should be sorry for that one. You should. I should. So, back to the story. Arrows start yes. flying. One pierces Gandalf's hat and sticks I there know. like a black feather. I love that I little do comedy. I kind of love that image. It's kind of funny. It is. It also tells you that it was a very close call. Uh, that he true. almost well, you yeah. know, got skewered. But the fact is, there's a little bit of humor here. You know, here's, yeah. here's Gandalf with a, an arrow in his floppy hat, and it's kind of funny. Yeah. Though, realistically, unless the hat is somewhat rigid, I have a hard time buying that. How does the arrow pierce it instead of just take it off his head? Maybe the hat, I mean, the hat's rigid enough. I mean, we're assuming that Gandalf has one of those pointy hats that we usually see him wearing, right? A pointy right. hat with a brim is what we usually But isn't it like Gandalf a wearing. felt sort of thing at the top? I mean, it's not, yeah. I don't know. I'm just thinking it's not like somebody's holding it up nice and tight. So that no, the that's arrow true. Can pierce it. That's true. But if it's if it's rigid enough to to stand up in some sort of a point, then maybe it's rigid enough to support an that's arrow. True. I, I maybe, maybe. It's not like piercing it is going to deflate it, and suddenly it's. <laughs> no, suddenly I'm just thinking there's not enough tension for it to pierce. Like if you tried to pierce a shirt that's just hanging on a clothes hanger with an arrow, you're not I, going yeah, to. Yeah, I it's hear just what you're saying. Blow the shirt. It's going to yeah. lift it up and blow right past it. Yeah. And I'm seeing that an arrow would probably actually just take the hat off rather than pierce the I hat. see what you're saying. Yeah. But it doesn't make for anywhere near as comic a scene no. as Gandalf's hat was shot off by an arrow. Although I would love to see Gandalf lose his hat like Indiana Jones and then just get oh, it back at the last minute. Right, right. And when I say the last minute, I mean the last minute because foreshadowing. We're in the last minute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just about. So... <laughs> Uh, We do get hundreds and hundreds of orcs with spears and, just as we saw last episode, scimitars. Mm -hmm. So, once again, we're reminded of that. And then the drums continue. Doom. Doom. So, great, great moment. Boy, this is... Tension's building. Tension is continuing to build. It's going to continue to build, and it's not going to let up until... Well, (laughs) I keep on foreshadowing. Yeah, I mean, it it really, the tension is not going to let up until the the dramatic moment that that we know is coming. Until it falls. Until it breaks. Yeah. Exactly. No, until it <laughs> falls. Then the tension falls. Until it, until it falls. Yes. Into the exactly. chasm. <laughs> All yes. right. I'm going to go ahead and have you read that Balrog arrives. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm jealous, but that's okay because I get the face off. So go for it. All right. Legolas turned and set an arrow to the string, though it was a long shot for his small bow. He drew, but his hand fell, and the arrow slipped to the ground. He gave a cry of dismay and fear. Two great trolls appeared. They bore great slabs of stone and flung them down to serve as gangways over the fire. But it was not the trolls that had filled the elf with terror. The ranks of the orcs had opened, and they crowded away as if they themselves were afraid. Something was coming up behind them. 
What it was could not be seen. It was like a great shadow, in the middle of which was a dark form, of man-shape maybe, yet greater. Mm-hmm. And a power and terror seemed to be in it, and to go before it. It came to the edge of the fire, and the light faded as if a cloud had bent over it. Then, with a rush, it leaped across the fissure. The flames roared up to greet it, and wreathed about it, and a black smoke swirled in the air. Its streaming mane kindled and blazed behind it. In its right hand was a blade like a stabbing tongue of fire. In its left, it held a whip of many thongs. Aye, aye, wailed Legolas. A Balrog! A Balrog is come! Gimli stared with wide eyes. Doran's bane, he cried, and letting his axe fall, he covered his face. A Balrog, muttered Gandalf. Now I understand. He faltered and leaned heavily on his staff. What an evil fortune, and I am already weary. Oh boy. Guess who's here, yeah. (sighs) You know how we talked earlier about the perspective being from Frodo? when we see the chasm and the bridge. Here, we'll see at the beginning of the passage you read that the perspective switches to Legolas because he is the one who will first know and recognize what this is. That is really interesting, you know, because I hadn't even thought about that until until you just now said that. And I'm remembering what Michael Drought said in uh, in that lecture that's on YouTube oh, yeah. that we've referenced. This kind of does fly in the face of that it epistemological It does, yeah, regime. because if, if folks remember, he talks about the fact that most scenes in Lord of the Rings are written from the perspective of the, of least, the least knowledgeable, knowledgeable observer. Character. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's a lot of reasons for that that he talks mm-hmm. about. It's all about oh, of that. Of course, because uh, the reader should be the least knowledgeable. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And it's all about that epistemic regime. Right. And it gives us a chance to learn along with the characters. But this time, he doesn't do that. He switches to Legolas's yeah. perspective because... As you said, Legolas is the only one who knows what this is, and yeah. Tolkien wants us to know what this is. I mean, Gimli knows what it is, too, but Legolas is going to be the one well, who recognizes it first. I mean, Gimli, Gimli sees it and realizes that this, this is the answer to all the riddles. Right. As he may not know that it's say. a Balrog. He just knows right, it's Durin's exactly. Bane. He may not right. have experience of Balrogs. It's Legolas who knows from mm-hmm. all the Legolas legends being and an tales. Elf. I mean, Aragorn right. would have heard stories of Balrogs. Boromir mm-hmm. probably has. Yeah. But Legolas is the one who who probably knows the most about them yeah. from, you know, from hearing stories of the elves in the first age. Probably so, from firsthand survivors. I mean, he certainly doesn't have firsthand experience, but he would have heard from those who might have firsthand experience. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. Would there be any in, in Mirkwood? Oh, like, yeah. That's a very good point. No. I mean, Thranduil. No. You've got the, the, the Cinderin elves at the very top, but most of them are Sylvan yeah. elves. No. And Thranduil, uh, I feel like, was was born a little bit later. Yeah, he might have. Uh, Orifer was the one, I think. Right. Is it Orifer? Thranduil's or- father who found it. Yeah, I think that was his name. Who fled Beleriand at the end of yeah. the first stage. So he might have had firsthand experience. He might have had some know. knowledge. But certainly being elves, they're going to have some right, knowledge right. of them. They're going to have much more in terms mm-hmm. of their tales and, and the legends and histories of the first age. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so he's about to fire this arrow when he just drops it. He cries out in dismay and fear. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, this is. This is Legolas, who doesn't have a lot of fear, right? This is a guy who's shooting people in the throat in the chamber of Masarapul rather right. than resorting to using his close-range close, close range weapons. Uh, yeah. He, he's not afraid. No. No, he's not. But this is, yeah. this is just this is a more terrifying thing than anybody oh, is, yeah. is used to seeing. This is a terror from thousands of years ago. This is a terror of legend. An ancient terror, a terror of legend. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. This is something that, even though he's heard stories, there are probably bits and pieces of him that just think, oh, that's 
you know, Th- those, good thing those aren't around anymore. Yeah. Right. Those are right. just stories. Exactly. Can't be really that bad. Oh, yeah, they yeah. are. Yeah, exactly. And we'll talk more about what the Balrog is. Oh, uh, yeah, like for bit. about half the episode, yeah. <laughs> yep. I mean, because if you think we're moving through this quickly, it's because we have a sidebar the it's size. It's because of we know we have a, we're, we're going we're gonna to come to a stop in a bit here. When, yeah, <laughs> when we yeah, we will. Some other stuff. <laughs> so, so let's not forget that in addition to the Balrog, this terror from the ancient world that we're seeing, right. there's also a couple enough. of huge trolls. Yeah, yeah. That are carrying stones that they're going to use as basically as gangplanks to cross the fire. Right, right. They've got that fissure that we talked about earlier, yeah. that north-south fissure that's yeah. to the west. Yeah. Right. So now they're coming so, from the east, laying the gangplanks. So, so much yeah. for being separated from them by the fire, Boromir. This is yeah. why we told you not to get too excited and you didn't yeah. listen to us. <laughs> but yeah, so the trolls throw these gangplanks across the fissure of fire. Um, right. And then suddenly, well we see the Balrog approaching as the orcs themselves yeah. shrink back in terror, backing away of course. from it. They know and it's this, this moment is. of, and, and I know we've kind of gone ahead because everybody knows what's coming. Right. But I mean, put yourself in the perspective of a first time reader. You're like, you're seeing these orcs what shrink away in this? terror. What in the world is coming? Right. And they can't even see it, can they? No, no. Looking at it, it's this great shadow. You can't see it itself. Mm-hmm. There's a shadow. And in the middle of that shadow is this dark form. So it's black on black. Yeah. And this dark form is of man shape, maybe. So, you know, some sort of a bipedal. Yeah. You know, it's not a spider. It's not a fly. It's not a dragon. It's a man-shaped creature, but it's it's greater than that. Mm-hmm. Bigger than that. Not necessarily huge. In fact, we'll get to that later, that it grew a little bit. Originally, it was man's size as well. Mm-hmm. But, but this psychological element of it, I think, is what we need to touch on. This power and terror were in it. And going before it, this thing projects power and terror. It is an intensely feared thing. Yeah. Yeah. By everybody, even by the orcs. Yeah. And that's, that's a very interesting thing about it because Mm -hmm. you have to imagine that, first of all, like you said, it's dark on dark. So it's like, there's a nothing there. It's like a hole there. It's like hot black Desiato, like a ship. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And for a second, I just got a, I got a thought of like, it's, it's like, how, how much more black can it be? And the answer is none. None more <laughs> none black. More black. <laughs> so it's dark. This is it's Vanta so, black. It, it's like, it's like, it's a, like that I mean, Vanta black paint. Have you heard about that? Right. This paint that like so black that it absorbs the light. It's like absorbs all light it. and it just reflects right. nothing. It's like a black yeah, hole. Like you can't basically. even see a shape. You can paint a three dimensional object and it looks flat because there's no, that's the weirdest there's no, thing. It doesn't reflect any light. Right. Yeah. Right. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah, I mean, so and that's what super, I'm imagining here. That's what yeah. I'm imagining is just just like a black like a black hole in the world where, right. where, a, a, where a shape of something should be. If I can borrow a word from the first age, an unlight. Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. It's got that very feeling that we get with mm-hmm. Ungoliant in terms of yeah. darkness as a thing in itself as opposed to darkness being the absence of light. It does have that yeah. feel, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it is, I think it's a perfect way of putting it. It's an unlight and it's, and it's not only the nothing that you see there that's terrifying, but there it's, it's projecting a terror yeah. from it yeah. as well. Before There's it, a terror right. that goes before it. It has this power mm-hmm. to, to create terror where it goes. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of that in D and D terms, right? You know, there's some sort of sphere. Yeah. Like a sphere of, of 20 uh, meters of, of fear. Yeah. You know, with your, when you're within 20 meters, roll, whatever, roll your morale. Yeah. Roll to save. If you don't save, you have to run away. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then if you get to 10 meters, you got to roll again, this time with a yeah. bigger modifier. Yeah. 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 That's the kind of thing we're talking about It's a terrifying thing. So it's, 
it's it's terrifying to look at and it's just terrifying to be around. If I could blend mythologies here, I don't know if I've ever brought in Warhammer 40K, but I wonder what a space marine would do. They know no fear. I see, they don't I, even I don't have to know. make morale checks. I don't know Warhammer, man. I'm sorry. No, I know. I'm just, I've got friends who like, know it. A handful of people who do. Space Marine <laughs> versus Balrog would be an interesting fight, I think. So anyway. Yeah. It's, it's like the, 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 the creature of fear versus somebody who knows no fear. Right, right. Like unstoppable object versus... What's, immovable. what's the word? Unstoppable immovable force object versus, versus unstoppable immovable object. Force. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, let's get back to this Balrog. I think we should. It approaches the fire and the light fades. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. it, it jumps. It leaps. Yeah. Now, the leap of Balrog, I suppose, is not quite as renowned as the leap of Baron, but <laughs> nice. It is a, it's a mighty leap, nonetheless. It is. But it is only a leap. He doesn't fly across, I'll have you know. Interesting. Just observe that. Very, it doesn't very interesting. fly across yeah. the fissure. No. Just so I wonder know. why. I don't well, know. we'll get back to that. Yeah, you'd think. All right. <laughs> but the description does not let up. We get, no. as it's leaping across, we get these flames actually roaring up to greet it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like, Daddy! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is some sort of, it almost seems as there's, there's some sort of attractive power. Oh, here. yeah. There is an affinity. No doubt about it. Yeah. yeah. It's, bringing, it's bringing the flames up to meet it. And then the flames mm-hmm. wreathe about it. And this black yeah. smoke swirls in the air. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, ma- it's hair. It's mane yeah. kindles and blazes behind it. Ooh, that's going to smell good. <laughs> burning Balrog you ever hair. singed your hair yeah exactly. arguably worse than than burning human hair yeah oh, I'm certain certain it would be because I'm sure it hasn't been washed since well, the beginning of age. time right yeah so yeah so and it, it it's trailing behind it's a beautiful image I mean I I want to see the it leap is, of the Balrog illustrated. it is a beautiful image and it's a very metal image you know this long oh, it is hair metal just, isn't it like yeah you know yeah yeah you're um, not kidding this is the, the this is the image you want painted on your van Oh yeah, absolutely. Your your party van that you had in the seventies. You want like with the, the big round porthole with the streaming it. hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, agreed. And you know you got like "Burning for You" by Blue Oyster Cult blaring out oh, the speakers. Oh man, yeah. There you yeah. go. Okay. Oh, there's another song for the playlist, by the way. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's been a great addition. We should throw. I mean, a if you're gonna bring there. Blue Oyster Cult onto the show, let's do it when the Balrog appears. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't fear the Reaper, man. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got this tongue of fire in his right hand, a flaming sword. This is, mm-hmm. we'll see more of that in a moment. But the thing here is he's also got the whip of many thongs. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, remember when yeah. we had dwarves and At least he doesn't have thongs. a thong and many whips. There you go. A whip of many thongs. I'm picturing a, a whip with, well, anyway. Yeah, no, let's just leave And it I there. noticed that it's in his left hand. So this guy's a dual wielding, you know. Maya here. What is it with Maya and dual wielding? Because we see Gandalf dual wield too, don't we? Yeah, exactly. We saw it before, and we'll see it again. Yeah, no, no, no. Nobody seems to be sword and board anymore. What's up with that? Yeah, well, they're Maya. They they got their own rules. That's true. As we discussed, Legolas recognizes this thing right away. He knows it's a Balrog. Gimli at least recognizes. Oh, this is Durin's bane. This must be the thing that all the stories we're talking about. Yeah. I do find it interesting, though, that his response is to let his axe fall and then cover his face. I would think keep the axe and run the other way would be my first instinctual reaction. But I, I understand just, if for him, it's like all hope is gone. I think he's petrified with fear. 
Totally. Remember, it's, that's it's the letting, thing. This has power and terror yeah. going before it. Uh-huh. Letting the axe fall is, that's the moment of despair. That's the last thing a dwarf would do. You're right. Uh-huh. This is definitely yeah. despair, no doubt about he's, it. He's, he's giving up the fight. He's covering his face. It's like, well, death is coming for me. I'm just right. going to. I don't want to see it come. I don't want to see it come. Right. Yeah. Yeah, oh, man. It's this is a despair though. moment. Sure. Yeah. And Gandalf, boy, his reaction, now he understands. Now he gets mm-hmm. it. And this, of course, confirms our mistake from a few episodes ago. I yeah, mean, it really makes it clear. Yeah, again, I think we talked about this, but he knew something was down here. But this moment right here tells us for sure that he clearly did not know it was this. Right. But it does explain everything. It explains the powerful magia that he encountered earlier, the counter spell on closing the door uh, and that, yeah. that deep sense of evil on the other side. And, yeah. and the idea that he, he met his match. He, he, used, yeah. he used those words. Yeah, he and, was almost destroyed. He was almost defeated. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, his comment here about how he's already weary, that tells us that he knows that this is his fight. You know, he he can't really rely on the others to to do anything here. No, this foe is beyond them. Yes, exactly. He has to do it himself, tired or not. And he's just, he's saddened by the fact that he has to do it as tired as he is. Yeah, Right. I mean, he knows that maybe there'd be a good chance of success if he were fresh. If he were at full strength, sure. Right, right, of Mm -hmm. course. But, you know, he's... He's at least a few potions shy on both meters, and uh, he's <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's really struggling, and he's like, exhausted. No, no, dude, you can't attempt the Balrog quest at fifty health and fifty mana. You just no, don't do you it. Got to go rest first. You yeah, know, take a, take a potion. Go back to town, get some potions, rest up, heal up, then man. come back. Yeah, have somebody throw you a buff, but you know. Mm-hmm. So now we're gonna get to the moment. We're gonna get to the face off, aren't we? Yes, we are. This is, whew. oh boy, it's. I'm like excited because I've been waiting to get to this moment for years, honestly. Yes. And, uh, pretty much since we started the show. Pretty much since we started the show. And it's such a great moment. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I am too. The dark figure streaming with fire raced towards them. The orcs yelled and poured over the stone gangways. Then Boromir raised his horn and blew. Loud the challenge rang and bellowed like the shout of many throats under the cavernous roof. For a moment, the orcs quailed and the fiery shadow halted. Then the echoes died as suddenly as a flame blown out by a dark wind, and the enemy advanced again. Over the bridge, cried Gandalf, recalling his strength. Fly! This is a foe beyond any of you. I must hold the net away. Fly! Aragorn and Boromir did not heed the command, but still held their ground side by side behind Gandalf at the far end of the bridge. The others halted just within the doorway at the hall's end and turned, unable to leave their leader to face the enemy alone. The Balrog reached the bridge. Gandalf stood in the middle of the span, leaning on the staff in his left hand, but in his other hand, Glamdring gleamed, cold and white. His enemy halted again, facing him, and the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings. It raised the whip and the thongs whined and cracked. Fire came from its nostrils. But Gandalf stood firm. You cannot pass, he said. The orcs stood still, and a dead silence fell. I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Arnor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. The Balrog made no answer. The fire in it seemed to die, 
but the darkness grew. It stepped forward slowly onto the bridge, and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall. But still Gandalf could be seen, glimmering in the gloom. He seemed small, and altogether alone, gray and bent like a wizened tree before the onset of a storm. From out of the shadow, a red sword leaped flaming. Glamdring glittered white in answer. There was a ringing clash and a stab of white fire. The Balrog fell back, and its sword flew up in molten fragments. The wizard swayed on the bridge, stepped back a pace, and then again stood still. You cannot pass, he said. With a bound, the Balrog leaped full upon the bridge. Its whip whirled and hissed. He cannot stand alone, cried Aragorn suddenly, and ran back along the bridge. Elendil, he shouted, I am with you, Gandalf. Gondor, cried Boromir, and leaped after him. At that moment, Gandalf lifted his staff, and crying aloud, he smote the bridge before him. The staff broke asunder and fell from his hand. A blinding sheet of white flame sprang up. The bridge cracked. Right at the Balrog's feet it broke, and the stone upon which it stood crashed into the gulf, while the rest remained, poised, quivering like a tongue of rock thrust out into emptiness. With a terrible cry, the Balrog fell forward, and its shadow plunged down and vanished. But even as it fell, it swung its whip, and the thongs lashed and curled about the wizard's knees, dragging him to the brink. He staggered and fell grasped vainly at the stone, and slid into the abyss. Fly, you fools, he cried, and was gone. Hmm? Man. Wow. That is one of those scenes that... You never forget it. It's you one never of forget the it. iconic scenes. Mm -hmm. oh. Even in the movie, I remember people I knew who went to go see the movie for... Yeah. Just going to see the movie for the first time. Right. knew nothing about the books. I remember people talking about this scene. People who had no connection to the books whatsoever. Right. This scene was incredibly powerful to people. Mm -hmm. I even remember Tears. somebody people telling me. People were crying. Uh, yeah. 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 Somebody said, <laughs> I distinctly remember somebody saying, yeah, I cried when the old dude died. You know, <laughs> it's the like. the old dude. <laughs> yeah. And that tells me like, you may not have really connected to the movie enough to learn characters' names or anything like that, but this scene was yeah. powerful enough for you to yeah. have an emotional reaction to. Exactly. And it is a powerful scene in the movie. The movie does mm -hmm. it really well. I, I have to give it Peter does. Jackson props for how he did it. Yeah. It's still more powerful in the book, <laughs> just because it's- It is more powerful It's just the, book, the, the right. language it, Tolkien uses and the alliteration mm -hmm. and the things that we see that we- And do, the building of tension, about. you know? It, yeah. yeah. Cinema moves at one second per one second, and it's, mm -hmm. you, you, don't, you can't ratchet up the tension super, super slowly. Yeah. And have that Tolkien's, much action in a scene. Right. Tolkien's you know, Tolkien use of language and the way he seconds. pauses over these descriptions. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just, he, he puts the action in slow motion. But it was pretty fantastically done, I will say. It uh, was, the music yeah. helped, of course. Uh, Shore's score at this point is just phenomenal uh, leading to this moment. And, uh, you know, then we get the silence, of course, you know, when, mm -hmm. when Gandalf falls. Yeah. Amazing moment. But let's go ahead and discuss this passage. There's a lot here, of course, as we always say, but... It's really important. So, yeah. Let's get well, to let's it. let's start right away with just the the pace of the action. You know, mm -hmm. in this scene, you know, although we're talking about things kind of going into slow motion here, 
the Balrog is moving fast, isn't it? It yeah. is streaming with fire and racing towards them. Right. Followed by the hordes coming of orcs, after it. Right. Exactly. Yelling and pouring yeah. over the gangways. This is not the standstill face-off moment yet. This not is yet, no. racing towards them. Right. Because this is the gangplanks over the fissure mm-hmm. of fire. They're right. not quite to the, the single They're not quite bridge. to the standoff. Yeah. Right. But boy, Boromir finally gets a chance properly, appropriately, <laughs> to blow his horn. And it, this and is it the works. time to do it. It does. It, it has exactly it, for the a moment. It, it works. The orcs mm-hmm. quail. Even the Balrog halts. Mm-hmm. But there's something magical about the way the echoes stop, isn't it? I think that's really interesting. They don't yeah. seem to die unnaturally. Yeah, as as a flame blown up by a dark wind. There's there's an, there's an idea that there it, it's silenced somehow. Yeah, the Balrog somehow quells the echo. Mm-hmm. Oh. And the enemy keeps coming. Mm-hmm. Gandalf gathers his strength. <laughs> Which is important. Tells them fly. Not for the last time. Fly. Right. As in flee. As in, right, is, as in run away. Yeah. Run, not sprout run wings and leave. <laughs> run away. Go, brave Sir Robbins, all of you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This is a foe beyond any of you. This is yeah. my fight. I got to yeah. do this. None of you have the power to defeat this. Mm-hmm. But Aragorn and Boromir are valiant. They're going to stay anyway, right? They're going to, well, they have to stay behind Gandalf because the bridge is too narrow for them to stand right. three abreast. But they come back to be a part of the action. The others stop at the end of the hall and turn around. They want to at least be mm-hmm. a part of this. Let's talk about the fellowship theme that's that yeah. we see in this paragraph. Boy, I mean, you know, we expect Aragorn and Boromir being mm-hmm. the valiant men that they are to to stand. Yes. Beside their leader and fight with And them. Gimli's already too far gone, remember, because yeah. he led Merry and Pippin across. Yeah. So he needs but the to rest stand of them, the side. the rest of them are unable to leave, even though they're terrified and they know yeah. that they can't do anything. They can't leave Gandalf alone. They have to watch no. at least. Yeah, and they stop at the end and they watch. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then we get the face-off. The Balrog right. actually reaches the bridge. Gandalf mm-hmm. is standing in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Amazing tableau of words here. Yeah. Boy, you're not kidding. Gandalf's dual-wielding too, right? He's got his staff yeah. on the left. He's got Glamdring in the, in the right, and it's gleaming, this cold and white. It made me think a little bit of, uh, oh, now the name of it left me, Fingolfin's sword. Ringil. Oh, Ringil, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. as he faces off against Morgoth, this sort of mm-hmm. cold, burning flame. Yeah. But but boy, this is quite a moment. And he is dual-wielding. Yeah, it's also worth noting that he is leaning on his staff. Yes. Well, earlier he was so, leaning heavily on it, wasn't he? True. There was a moment in, I think, your earlier reading, uh, maybe yeah. it was mine, I don't recall now, where he leaned heavily. Yeah, We've talked about how weary he is already. Oh, he's very tired, yeah. And he's still weary, but mm-hmm. he's he's kind of mustering his strength, but he's still leaning on the staff a bit. So yeah. let's see that for what it is. He's dual wielding, but he's it's taking everything he's got. Every ounce, yeah, no doubt. This is he knows this there's nothing to hold back in reserve here. Mm-hmm. All or nothing yeah. at this point. That's true. Yeah. yeah, that's it. This is this is where he's gonna spend himself, mm-hmm. you know. Indeed, he does, and he knows that. I want to pull in something from one of the letters here. This is from letter 156. He's talking about the wizards. He's talking about Gandalf specifically. Mm-hmm. And he says that Gandalf alone fully passes the tests on a moral plane anyway. Tolkien admits that Gandalf makes mistakes of judgment. Back to Tolkien's words. For in his condition, it was for him. By condition, he means his incarnate condition, I should say, not just his fatigue. I know we're talking about how right, he is. Right. But we're talking about the fact that he's a Maya in That he's incarnate. Form. Yeah, that he's, there's a couple of paragraphs about the incarnation of the Maya. Which is different because Balrog is not. I mean, the Balrog may be stuck in this form, as we'll talk about, mm-hmm. but he's not incarnate like the wizards are. So Correct. anyway, yeah. for in his condition, meaning he's still mortal, 
It was for him a sacrifice to perish on the bridge, spoilers, in defense of his companions, less perhaps than for a mortal man or hobbit, since he had a far greater inner power than they, but also more, since it was a humbling and abnegation of himself in conformity to the rules with a capital R. For all he could know at that moment, he was the only person who could direct the resistance to Sauron successfully, and all his mission was vain. He was handing over to the authority, capital A, that ordained the rules, capital R, and giving up personal hope of success. Hmm. That, I should say, is what the authority wished as a set-off to Saruman. The wizards as such had failed, or if you like, the crisis had become too grave and needed an enhancement of power. So Gandalf sacrificed himself, was accepted, and enhanced, and returned. And we'll get to more of that, of course, and cover that in much more depth when Gandalf does return. Spoilers. In the next season. Right, in the next season. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a, that is a great call out. I'm glad you brought that, that in because it, yeah. because it shows that Gandalf is not just sacrificing his own life here, his own incarnate no. life here. He's sacrificing his mission. Yeah. He is trusting to the authority that yeah. somehow his mission will still be completed even though he's no longer here to complete yeah, it. Yeah, right. Exactly. I shouldn't say he's sacrificing the mission. He, he's sacrificing his personal involvement in the mission. Right. He's. This is, uh, I joked about this a couple of episodes ago. This is like Iluvatar take the wheel, you know? Right, this it is, really is. This I'm, is a literal. <laughs> I have to do this. cracks me up, by the way. I love that line. <laughs> I want to write a song. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he, he really is. That's what he's doing. He's, he's saying, okay, I'm going to relinquish my control over the situation and I'm going to trust that the authority is going to take care of it. And that's, yeah. That's what Tolkien means when he says authority with a capital A. He's talking about Iluvatar. Yeah, he's talking about Iluvatar. And we'll we'll explore that along with the whole Gandalf 2.0 discussion uh, when we encounter Gandalf yes. the White later on. Indeed. I love that moment when he remembers, oh, yeah, oh yes, Gandalf, that was the name. Yes. He's, it's like 2.0. I mean, he fully doesn't even remember. It has to come back to him, yeah. It does. It does. He has to kind he of been called it. And pull it back, yeah. Yeah, he really does. All right. But well, for let's now, go ahead and get back to this face-off. Yeah. It's great stuff. Yeah, so he this is the sacrifice he's about to make here, but we're not there yeah. yet. I mean, we've read no, not it, but quite. Not, we haven't talked about it yet. Uh, so the Balrog stops, and this is mm-hmm. the face-off moment on the bridge. He's facing Gandalf. Yeah, the shadow reaches out. Yeah, and he raises the whip. Yeah, and this is this is like a this is not a single whip whip. This is like a cat of nine tails kind of thing, right? right. It's the Multiple many thongs, thongs, right? We talk yeah. about the whip of many thongs, mm-hmm. right? And he's he's raising this. And the fire comes out of his nostrils. It's this is a threat. This is intimidation, right? Yeah, he's got. Yeah. He automatically makes his intimidation roll. You know, yeah. there's totally. And your save is you got to roll a natural twenty, or you're not gonna. Yeah, you're not gonna succeed. But is Gandalf intimidated? That's the thing. He rolls a natural twenty. He is unmoved. <laughs> yeah, unmoved. Stood, stood in the middle of the span. Yeah, and he just he stood firm. Fire came from yeah. his nostrils, but Gandalf stood firm. And he denies passage, but he denies passage on the authority of Iluvatar himself. Mm-hmm. So let's take a little bit of a break on and talk about that. I want to talk about the secret fire. I want to talk about Anor, the flame of Anor. And I want to talk about the flame of Udun. So mm-hmm. first, let's talk about the secret fire. Uh, in the Ainulindale, we talked a lot about the flame imperishable, which Tolkien would later say appears to mean the creative activity of Eru, in some sense distinct from or within him by which things could be given a real and independent, though derivative and created, existence. That's a great quote. Chew Mm -hmm. through that. Rewind a few seconds if you need to, because that's deep, especially if you weren't with us in season one. Now, 
We tried to distinguish unsuccessfully, <laughs> okay, I tried to distinguish unsuccessfully between the flame imperishable and the secret fire. And I still like where I went with that. But then Tolkien goes and uses the phrase secret fire as a synonym for flame imperishable in the Valquenta. Yeah. It was a good thought. I mean, you're, you're, you're yeah. trying to look at, you know, I mean, we, we I mean, generally assume that Tolkien doesn't use language accidentally. So when he right. uses different phrases, you want to, you want to look for meaning in that. But obviously right. in this case, it was not. It was not right. Yeah, I mean, so. even this quote that, that I just read appears to me the creative activity of Eru, by which things could be given that real and independent existence, seems to support my original theory. The idea that the flame imperishable is the source of creative activity and the secret fire is a thing put in those things that are created. But in Valaquenta, we learned that they are the same thing. So I, I, I think I think it's the difference between like. I know exactly what you're saying. It's like you're, yeah. you're thinking the secret fire is a derivative of the flame imperishable. It's like an instance Somewhat. of the, the flame secret imperishable. fire is the is the evidence of the flame imperishable. If yeah. I possess the flame imperishable and I possess it in and of myself, only myself as Eru Iluvatar, and I create something, that thing now has a secret fire in it. Right. But, but it's it like the flame imperishable because it can't turn around and create things with the secret fire of its own. No. Hence, Aule's creation but, has to be imbued with the secret right. fire or it won't be independent. Even right. that's derivative and created. But obviously Tolkien is saying those two things are the same. He's, he's Somehow they're the, the same, yeah. The the candle that's lit from the flame is the same as is the flame It's still itself. the same flame, right. Mm -hmm. So here's the line that confirms that. I'm just going to go ahead and confess my error. Therefore, Iluvatar gave to their vision being and set it amid the void, and the secret fire was sent to burn at the heart of the world, and it was called Ea. Well, in Aina it was the flame imperishable that Iluvatar said shall be at the heart yeah. of the world. So, yeah, obviously it's the same thing. And that's what Gandalf is referring to here, the creative activity of Eru that allows for real existence. That what he, that's what he means. I am a servant of the creative activity yeah. of the one that allows yeah. for genuine existence. Absolutely. Well, now let's talk about another flame, Anor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the yeah. Silmarillion, we learned that Anar is one of the names mm -hmm. of the sun, right. uh, and Anor is just another form of that name. Uh, Tolkien right. says in the nomenclature that Anor means sun. And we know that with Minas Anor, right? Because that was before oh, Min Minas Tirith's name previously was Minas Anor, yes, the Tower of the Sun versus the Tower of the Minas Sun, just like Minas Ithil was the Tower of the Moon. Right. Yeah. And what we're, what we're looking at here is the Sindarin form of the name, Anor, right. as opposed to Anar, which is the Quenya form. Right. Now, Hammond and Skull find it odd that Gandalf would reference the sun here, given what he says, first of all, about Gandalf being a servant of the secret fire, which is sort of the greater flame, right? Well, right, and, right. And then the fact that Tolkien says in the famous letter to Milton Waldman, whose number I don't even have to give anymore, that its light was <laughs> derived from the trees only after they are sullied by evil. So, right. you know, we've talked about this before. The idea that the sun is a next best, uh, how does he right. put it? He says it's a second best thing. It is a second best thing, right? It's and, the light after right. evil has come and destroyed the light. Right. And if we if we look at it in terms of refracting the way Verlin Flieger likes to look, it's like the sun mm. came from the trees, the trees came after the lamps, you know, right. and all of them are lesser than the fire of Iluvatar, the, 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 right. the secret fire. Mm -hmm. So... So it does seem interesting here that Gandalf refers to himself as a wielder of the flame of Anor. Mm -hmm. But they reference Tolkien's efforts to fix his creation in terms of the, the, the legend of the sun and moon and the fact right. that this effort was already underway by the time this part of the story mm. had been written. That makes sense. Yeah, he was definitely at that point already trying to make mm -hmm. that fix to the mythology mm -hmm. uh, when he got into this, this part of the story. 
Now, just two episodes ago in 157, we were discussing whether Tolkien had started to work on some of that myth's transformed material and whether that influenced the idea that no stain yet on the moon was seen in Gimli's right. Song of Durin. And we thought that didn't influence it because the staining would have happened long before Durin's awakening. Right. And, and that time issue of the poem, notwithstanding, I mean, it does seem like he was at least working on that material. Yeah. So it must have influenced this scene and probably that line of the poem as well. Exactly. Even though the timeline that. doesn't quite work out. Right. Now, finally, Udun, we're going to move on to the third kind of odd thing here, the unique thing in the this. The third paragraph. flame that we've got here. Right. right. Yeah. Is defined by Tolkien as dark pit. And it refers to Morgoth's halls that were beneath Thangorodrim. Now, the 1966 index also defines Udun as hell, certainly strengthening the parallel of Balrog to demon. Yeah, it's interesting that Tolkien explains Udun as being the halls beneath Thangorodrim, because Udun is actually the cinder in form of Utumno, right. which anybody who was with us in season one remembers that that was Melkor's original citadel. Mm-hmm. It was actually destroyed when the elves awakened and the Valar made war on him. Right. And... He ended up, when he, when he came back, he ended up going to Angband, which was his other fortress. Mm-hmm. That was the one beneath Thangaradrum, which was further to the west. Right. So I wonder what's going on here when Tolkien talks yeah, about Udun being below Thangaradrum. Right. I mean, is maybe he's simplifying the complex mythology for Lord of the Rings readers. Maybe he hadn't finalized maybe. it. Maybe he's rethinking the original geography. I don't know. Maybe so. I think regardless of those details, I think the main thing that we need to take from Gandalf's words here are that this, this scene is a showdown between really two kinds of fire. Um, there's the fire of Anor, and I guess really the, the, the secret fire too, right? And you know, we're mm-hmm. talking about the sun and Arian and the fire of life, the fire that illuminates, the, the holy fire of Iluvatar versus right. the fire of Udun, which is Melkor's fire. It's hellfire. It's you know the fire yeah. that destroys or that punishes. And so that's really what Gandalf is saying here. He's talking about, you know, you've got your evil fire. I've got my holy fire. Let's see what we can do. <laughs> let, <laughs> let's go, bro. Let's, you know, br- that's, yeah, bring that's it. kind of what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Bring yeah. it. Come at me. <laughs> Gandalf, come at me, bro. <laughs> come at me, bro. This is we Gandalf, can just do like, like one of those nice, really massively deep artistic illustrations of Balrog versus Gandalf on the bridge. And just text underneath. And, Come and at they just me, put bro. a meme text at the bottom. Come at right. me, bro. There you go. Somebody probably gotta... has done it with like a movie scene. Probably. Probably. Everything I think of has already been done. That's kind of the problem. I still got a few ideas, but I just do don't you? have time to do them. Don't, well, don't talk about them on the show because somebody else <laughs> no, will do it. Because somebody will do them. To get around to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So the Balrog makes no answer. The fire in it does seem to die, though, doesn't it? But. But the darkness grows that's the thing that's the thing i think it it realizes okay fine my fire won't be able to defeat your fire but my darkness that's another story i think that's a i think that's a good point yeah so it steps onto the bridge the shadow spreads further it does spread further in fact we'll get to the description of that spreading (laughs) shadow later but for now i want to mention what happens with gandalf i love this gandalf glimmering in the gloom we get that alliteration again. Boy, that is, is some so... alliteration right there. Yeah. Oh, and it's so beautiful. And it totally, you know, if, if we talk about the, the sword glamdering, you know, with the cold gleam reminding me yeah. of Ringgill, this like now Ringgill. totally reminds me now of Fingolfin facing off against Morgoth. Yeah. This is a, a, a total replica of that scene. It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, and it's yeah, a terrifying that's true. way. But yeah. And you do get a similar kind of David and Goliath feel from the showdown, don't you? 
You, know, you do. You do. It's a Gandalf little. Is, it's a little more evenly matched because it's now you you got Maya versus Maya. Yeah, that's uh, true. And and I guess maybe I'm I'm tainted by movie scenes and a lot of scenes that have shown the Balrog as being way oh, too big, gigantic, to right? Way too big. Yeah, yeah. He's not that big. Yeah, but I think in terms of the apparent power of the scene is what I'm thinking of here because you see Gandalf is described as gray and bent, right. like a tree before a storm. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, of course, he's a tree that's seen and survived many storms before. Right, that's the point. He's not one of these trees that gets blown over in the first yeah, storm because he doesn't know how to bend. Yeah, that's true. But gray and bent is sort of a misleading, uh, sort oh, of yeah. a misleading description because it does kind of make you, make you think, oh man, he's he's done for. Right. It does sort of set the stage for mm-hmm. you know disappointment. And boy, the Balrog I think sees that and thinks this is his time, and it's sudden, isn't it? It's just immediate. Out of the mm-hmm. shadow, the sword leaps flaming, boom, and Glamdring yeah. glitters in answer. I love what happens here. This is a blink and you miss it moment. The Balrog falls back from that defense, yeah. and his sword, his sword is gone. Broken. Gone. Yep. Molten fragments just shattering through the air. Yeah. Clearly, the flame of Anor is stronger than the fire yeah. of Udun. Yeah. And Gandalf steps back too, you know, he, yeah, he takes a, a pace back. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then he stands Sway still. a little bit, right. But, mm-hmm. but then he stands still again. Right. And he repeats the, the denial of passage. You cannot pass. Yeah. Yeah, we should talk and, about that a little bit, huh? Yeah, you know, I think we, we did talk about this in a, a Barlaman's Bag segment once before. The difference between you shall not pass, which yeah. is in the movie and arguably sort of burned into the minds of, of everybody oh, when yeah. they think of this Ian scene. Ian McKellen's spectacular delivery, which I tried yeah. desperately to avoid sounding like I was duplicating. I think you succeeded. I hope so. But there is a difference between you shall yeah. not pass and you cannot pass, is what, which is what we see here. Right. And, and that was exactly what that question was about. What, what does the movies you shall not pass mean versus you cannot pass? And yeah. if I recall correctly, where we landed is you cannot pass implies permission. Authority. It implies right. a, or lack of permission. Exactly. It, it's, it's, it's implying that Gandalf has the authority to say you cannot mm-hmm. pass. That's you are right. not allowed. I am here as a, here as a servant of... Eru Iluvatar himself. Yeah. And under his authority, our I dad, you passage. That's right. Our literal father, because we are both the offspring of his thought. That's right. Said, has given me the authority to. <laughs> I'm the big brother. <laughs> He's here. left the house. I'm the dad big brother. Dad put me I'm in, in charge. charge. <laughs> and you are not allowed to do this. Oh, man. I'm waiting for the day that my daughter tells me <laughs> what my son told her to do when he's <laughs> in charge. Yeah. <sighs> Whereas you shall not pass. There's definitely a, there's a power behind it. It's saying that I'm going to stop you from passing no matter what right, you do. Right. But there's a difference between preventing yeah. somebody from doing something and telling them with authority, authority that they are not allowed to do so. That's right. I, I think shall not pass is certainly more theatrical, certainly more cinematic, but it's, it's not quite the same. I also thought it's interesting in, in this case, we've get, you cannot pass a couple of times with just a period. They're spoken. Right. He says, mm-hmm. you cannot pass, he said, and then go back to the shadow, exclamation mark. You cannot pass, period. But now after this, you cannot pass, exclamation mark. This is I'm, I'm a reminder. You don't have authority. You don't have permission. Yeah. You cannot do this. So right. don't. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, any parent knows that if you have to repeat yourself, you're, oh, yeah. you're issuing a command that comes from just authority. Gandalf's about to count to three. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the second or third time that exclamation mark is going to come out. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. And I think that's the really interesting thing about cannot versus shall not is you yeah. said shall not is, is cinematic. I think it is 
it is cinematic in the sense that it implies uh, a battle of wills. It implies, mm -hmm. yeah. it implies mono that, you know, mono. Yeah. we're, yeah, exactly. We're going to, you're, I'm going to stop you from doing this. You right. cannot implies that I am in a position of authority over you. And right. I can I deny you the permission to mm -hmm. do this. Right. Yeah. Not that the Balrog cares about permission. I haven't listened to dad in decades, man. You know, he doesn't listen to what <laughs> decades dad at has least. To say. Yeah. <laughs> decades of millennia, but yeah. Thousands of decades, yeah. Right. So now the Balrog is relying on the whip because the sword has right. been shattered. Yeah. I have a surprise for you. I'm not left handed. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. Of course. So the whip, interestingly, does seem to be the primary weapon of the Balrogs throughout the Legendarium. So the loss of its sword really isn't a problem. It's like he led with his weakest weapon. We mm. have from yeah. the Silmarillion, we have at least three quotes that talk about that. They were That's cloaked right. in darkness and terror went before them, which we also see here. They had mm. whips of flame. That's right. And then elsewhere we get with their whips of flame, they smote asunder the webs of Ungoliant. Right, right. And and still later, uh, when Fingon is fighting Gothmog, we get, and Fingon fought with Gothmog until another Balrog came behind and cast a thong of fire about him. Right. So, I mean, clearly this is sort of their, their go-to weapon. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a surprise that he led with the sword. It's like, oh, well, that doesn't work. Let me use what I'm used to. Yeah. The, the Inigo Montoya quote is kind of perfect now that I'm thinking the, about yeah, it. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> oh, well, I'll just use my other hand now. Exactly. Aragorn and Boromir go into the fray. Of course they do. And that's when Gandalf, apparently using his uh, staff self-destruct power, smites the bridge. <laughs> Manufacture rules is, dictate I cannot be captured. <laughs> is it that or is... I think that there's something going on with wizard staffs. I think we need to talk about this in a future episode. I, though um, I know we will. I think there's but just... I don't know. The staff breaks asunder when he smites the bridge. I think this, yeah, is, this is the last thing this staff can do. It is taking all of its power. It is yes. going to break the staff to do it. Yes, I so agree. It's sort of yeah, there's so much power in a way. There's so much power. Yeah, it's not like he's pressing the self-destruct button. It's well, no. There's so much really. power that it that's passing through the staff that it breaks. Yeah, that's it, what it I think cannot survive. Right, and, yeah. and I know. I mean, I'm yeah joking about the actual self-destruct power because there's no countdown timer. <laughs> of course. So <laughs> I mean, if there was, if it was a self-destruct timer, there a button, there'd be a timer. Not a very well-designed self-destruct because no, push the button. No oops, time. boom. <laughs> yeah. So he smites the bridge. The staff breaks and falls mm -hmm. and we will like yeah. you said talk about this in a future episode yeah and then the bridge cracks and breaks yeah oh and then the man. balrog falls yeah forward into the chasm and vanishes right but oh, as it's boy. going down we can all primary see primary weapon if only he used the whip first and had to rely on his sword he wouldn't have been able to bring right? Gandalf down yeah. i know wow interesting that's an interesting what if but yeah no it's got the whip it swings the whip one last time drags Gandalf yeah. to the brink. And as and he falls, that's when he calls out, fly, you fools. Not, not as he's gripping and holding on for the last moment. He's, he's already fallen. And it's as he's yeah. falling, he's saying, fly, you fools. He knows this is the last chance I have to call them fools. And so I shall. <laughs> <laughs> Especially Golly. you, Pippin. Yeah, fly, you fools. You fool of a Pippin, you too. <laughs> that's part of the, you can't quite hear it from here. That's what he says. Yeah. 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 Fly you fools. Make sure Pippin listens. Yeah. He's giving one last piece of, of counsel. It's what Gandalf does best is give counsel. It's true. Yeah. And you know, he doesn't scream. You don't hear the Wilhelm scream. You don't hear him saying, <laughs> I'm going to catch you Balrog. He's, he's saying to the rest of the company, get out of here, run. Well, and seriously, because he is sacrificing himself so that they can go on. 
Right. If, so that the he goes down into the chasm continue. and then the orcs get them. Oh, yeah. It's all for His sacrifice is in vain. Right. Yeah. Get out. So get out of here. Don't let me die in vain is basically what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Valid point. Now, Hammond and Skull make an interesting observation. Mm-hmm. In The Hobbit, Gandalf leaves Bilbo and the dwarves only to rejoin them near the end of their journey. Now, right. as he's gone, Bilbo manages to grow quite a bit in terms of his abilities. It's kind of a kind of a classic uh, sort of a Joseph Campbell trope, isn't it? Sort of separating the hero from the yeah, mentor. Yeah, that is classic. You're right. Um, here, Hammond and Skull point out, Tolkien removes Gandalf twice for purposes of the story. Near the beginning, so that Frodo and his companions have to make the journey to Rivendell without the wizard's support. And again in book two, so that Frodo and Sam travel on their own into Mordor. That's right. But there's more. They point us to the Return of the Shadow to show how Tolkien had already imagined this for Gandalf here in The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien says, Of course Gandalf must reappear later. Probably fall is not so deep as it seemed. Gandalf thrusts Balrog under him, and eventually following the subterranean stream in the gulf, he found a way out. But he does not turn up until they have had many adventures. Mm. I love how he just gets the Balrog to break his fall. (laughs) Right. And so probably the fall is not so deep as it seemed. So... When you think of some of those beautiful cinematic scenes. Right. Of Oh, where he's, oh, where it seems like he's falling in slow motion because of the scale of that cavern. Yeah, yeah. But of course, uh, you know, it is a much deeper chasm than Tolkien right. was originally as, thinking here. As we learn when Gandalf. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll learn later when he comes later. back. Yeah. Right. Gimli mm-hmm. says, deep is the abyss that is spanned by the bridge. None has measured it. Gandalf confirms there is a bottom, but he says it's, quote, beyond light and knowledge. So it's a very, very it's a bit, long way. Yeah, it's, it's deep. Yeah. It is definitely deep. Well, folks, do you think you know what's coming next? Is it time? I think it's time. I think it's time. Well, here we go. Folks, you knew this day was coming, right? It's the Balrog sidebar. Long awaited. Never duplicated. Duplicated, duplicated, duplicated. (laughs) Well done. There's your Latin reference for the day. All right, first let's talk about what Balrogs are. Now, most of you know they are Maiar who were in the service of Morgoth. That means that, well, initially they were either drawn to his splendor in the days of his greatness and remained in that allegiance down into his darkness, Mm -hmm. or they were corrupted afterwards to his service with lies and treacherous gifts. Now, those lines, which are from Valaquenta in the Silmarillion, apply to any of the Meyer who served Melkor. But the Balrogs are mentioned specifically. Dreadful among these spirits were the Valaraukar, the scourges of fire that in Middle-earth were called the Balrogs, demons of terror. Now, later in chapter three of the Quintus Silmarillion of the coming of the elves and the captivity of Melkor, we learn that in a tumno, Melkor gathered his demons about him, those spirits who first adhered to him in the days of his splendor and became most like him in his corruption. Hmm. Their hearts were of fire, but they were cloaked in darkness and terror went before them. They had whips of flame. Balrogs, they were named in Middle-earth in later days. So it seems they didn't need to be corrupted afterwards like some of the Maiar. They were. In the words of the Valaquenta, the ones drawn to his splendor in the days of his greatness. Right. They're his original posse. That's right. OG Balrog, man. That's right. Yeah. And that reference to Atumno explains the flame of Udun that we were talking about a moment ago. It certainly does. Now, we also dug into the letters. They're only mentioned in two letters in Carpenter's volume. The first is Mm -hmm. a brief mention in the relatively infamous letter number 210 to Forrest Ackerman, in which Tolkien systematically dismantles just about everything in Zimmerman's proposed script. Uh, nothing there about wings, unfortunately. Just a confirmation <laughs> that the Balrog never speaks or makes any vocal sound at all. Above all, he does not laugh or sneer. That's right. Zimmerman had him laughing or sneering, didn't he? Right, right. But I do love the fact that the Balrog doesn't make any sound. It makes him that much yeah. scarier. Yeah, it makes him much more terrifying. Yeah. 
Now, the other more significant mention in the letters is in letter number 144 to Naomi Mitchison, which is right. a really insightful letter for a lot of reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it also fails to give us anything about wings or their lack of wings. Right. But here's what Tolkien does say. The Balrog is a survivor from the Silmarillion and the legends of the First Age. The Balrogs, of whom the whips were the chief weapons, well, there, there we, we go, go again, yep. were primeval spirits of destroying fire, chief servants of the primeval dark power of the First Age. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to have been all destroyed in the overthrow of Thangaradrim, his fortress in the north. But it is here found, there is usually a hangover, especially of evil from one age to another, that one had escaped and taken refuge under the mountains of Hithyglin, the Misty Mountains. It is observable that only the elf knows what the thing is, and doubtless Gandalf. That's right. Now, in The Treason of Isengard, we discover that in the original version of this chapter, Tolkien described the Balrog as no more than man-high, yet terror seemed to go before it. They Mm -hmm. could see the furnace fire of its yellow eyes from afar. Its arms were very long. It had a red, and then in brackets, tongue, because Christopher couldn't tell from the notes. Mm -hmm. But then Tolkien noted in the margins, Alter description of Balrog. It seemed to be of man's shape, but its form could not be plainly discerned. It felt larger than it looked. Mm. That's important, I think. That's that fear we were talking about, isn't it? Exactly. And it's, again, the reminder that it isn't massive. It doesn't look massively large. It felt larger than it looks. Right. Now, going back in history even further, Tolkien originally envisioned, and I remember we talked about this in the first season, large numbers of Balrogs taking part Mm -hmm. in the assault on Gondolin. Right. But in Morgoth's ring, Tolkien wrote in the margins of a passage about Melkor sending forth his Balrogs that there should not be supposed more than, say, three or at most seven ever existed. Hmm. Now, given that limited quantity and the fact that most were slain when Thangaradrim was overthrown, this may be the very last one. That's right. Now let's take a look at some of the inspiration for Balrogs. Now, although we don't want to look too closely at the bones, I guess. No. Uh, although that's less true every week, I think. <laughs> Tom Shippey has true. something to say that we've actually touched on before. Back in episode 114, our special about race in Tolkien. Uh, well, it was uh, originally our Patreon yeah, special Patreon. in September 2018, but then we released it as episode 114 on the main feed in February 2019. Right. Anyway, back in that episode, we talked about an old English word, Silherwan. Right. Which had traditionally been used in Old English texts to mean Ethiopian, but that Tolkien believed etymologically meant something completely different. Right. Here's what Shippey has to say about that in Author of the Century. In modern dictionaries and editions, these Silwera, and he's using a, a later form of the, of the noun, right. are invariably translated as Ethiopians. Tolkien thought that the name should have been written Silherwa. Furthermore, he suggested that a Silherwa was a kind of fire giant. The first Ooh. element in the compound meant both sun and jewel. The second was related to Latin carbo, soot. Mm-hmm. When an Anglo-Saxon of the pre-literate Dark Age said Silherwa before any Englishman had ever heard of Ethiopia or of the Book of Exodus, right. Tolkien believed that what he meant was, and here he quotes Tolkien himself, rather the sons of Muspel. And that's a reference to fire creatures in Norse mythology who will bring on Ragnarok, the, the great mm-hmm. battle between the, the Norse gods and the powers of evil. Mm-hmm. Rather the sons of Muspel than of Ham, that's the son of Noah, the ancestors of the Silherwan with red-hot eyes that emitted sparks, with faces black as soot. Thanks for that, because that's deep stuff. That's a deep dive. Mm-hmm. That's a B-side yeah. cut into Shippey's uh, author <laughs> yeah. of the century. Into an interesting, interesting inspiration, really. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But now we know there's a question that you really want us to answer. You've been asking this. We've gotten millions mm-hmm. of questions in the mailbag. That might we be have. It's one of the not. great controversies of Tolkien mm-hmm. fandom. 
Yeah. Were the Balrogs left-handed? We're going to answer it for you today here, folks. That's right. Do they have <laughs> wings? Let's be honest. Of course, the, question the question everybody wants to know, what about Balrog wings? That's what everybody wants to know. So let's go mm -hmm. ahead and dig into this finally and definitively, shall we? Well, as definitively as we can. There you go. Now, the most common argument for Balrogs having wings is this line from the text that we just read. Suddenly, it drew itself up to a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall. Sounds pretty clear. But to put this line in context, you have to look just a bit before when we read, his enemy halted again, facing him, and the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings. Mm -hmm. So what we have to decide is whether the wings that were spread from wall to wall refers to literal wings or to the wing-like shadows that were mentioned just a few lines previously. Now, we believe the line, the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings, is a simile. I think that's clearly a simile, if you remember well, right. from school. Yeah. Yeah. But we also believe that the second line is a metaphor that refers back to that simile. It's sort of an extension of that simile into a metaphor. Right. And in fact, we had a really interesting Twitter exchange with our friend Dr. Luke Shelton of the Tolkien Experience podcast. He diagrammed the first sentence where it's described like two vast wings. And then a conversation took place in which a few of us talked about how the simile in the first sentence is extended by using it as a metaphor, which is still a comparison, but with no like in a later sentence. Right. And Tolkien uses this construction, I guess you could call it, in a few other mm -hmm. places. There's something right. similar in the chapter Three is Company. When Tolkien is describing the elves' retreat in Woodhall, he says, There the green floor ran on into the wood and formed a wide space like a hall, roofed by the boughs of trees. Their great trunks ran like pillars down each side. That emphasis is mine. Right. In the middle, there was a wood fire blazing, and upon the tree pillars, torches mm -hmm. with lights of gold and silver were burning steadily. So right. there you've got first the simile, the great trunks ran like pillars. Right. Comparing those trunks to the pillars in a hall. And right. then later, he uses a metaphor of tree pillars that calls back that simile. It's not that the trees have suddenly become pillars. No, it's just they're still trees. There's still trees. He's just using a metaphor the second time he mentions mm -hmm. it. To call back to that simile. Mm -hmm. Tolkien uses this technique again in Akalabeth when the Valar sends storm clouds that look like eagles to smite the Numenorians. Mm -hmm. And out of the west there would come at times a great cloud in the evening, shaped as it were an eagle, with pinions spread to the north and the south, and slowly it would loom up, blotting out the sunset, and then uttermost night would fall upon Numenor. And some of the eagles bore lightning beneath their wings, and thunder echoed between sea and cloud. Mm -hmm. Now, first the simile, comparing the clouds to being shaped like an eagle. Similes typically use like or as. In this case, it's as, as it were right. an eagle. But right. then in a later sentence, the metaphor of some of those eagles bearing lightning. But these eagles aren't eagles. They're still just clouds. That's right. And I think especially in the Akalabeth passage, we yeah. see how he uses that similar construction to a similar dramatic effect to what he does here at the Balrog. Yeah, now, absolutely. In all three of these cases, the transition from a simile to a metaphor is used to, to really start to make you think that the thing being compared to is actually there, is actually True. a literal thing. And I'm afraid Tolkien accomplishes this too well, because I think yeah. a lot of people have landed on pro wings. Yeah, have landed on pro wings. Exactly. But it really is just it is a dramatic effect that he's achieving with this. He's it would not be as powerful to use the simile the second time around. It, it's much more right. powerful to use the metaphor the second time around. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that interpretation of a metaphor calling back to the simile is going to be something that many folks disagree with. Yeah. But let's use an old debate technique, and we can look at both interpretations. 
And we can see that the conclusion actually depends on your underlying presumption to begin with. Let's start by replacing shadow with arms. Nobody disagrees that Balrogs have arms. It's pretty obvious. Uh, now, sure. if we had the shadow about it reached out like two vast arms, we'd still see this as a simile because it's like two vast arms. But then if the second line had its arms were spread from wall to wall, we would almost certainly read this as referring to actual arms, not the shadow arms. And that's how you view these passages if you believe that Balrogs have wings. But if you replace shadow with, I don't know, let's say tentacles, we'd have a different result. Because <laughs> we just can't get enough about tentacles around here lately. No, we can't get enough about tentacles. But I have to also give a hat tip to the Encyclopedia of Arda for this example. Okay. Nobody thinks Balrogs have tentacles. So we'd clearly read the first line as a simile again, right? The shadow reached about it like two vast tentacles. But the second line about its tentacles were spread from wall to wall would clearly be seen as a metaphor referring back to the earlier simile. Nobody would make the <laughs> argument that they suddenly sprang actual tentacles. That's how the two of us see Like this. it's a displacer beast. And it's, right. got two, it's got tentacles coming out of its shoulder. Yeah. That's awesome. But in both cases, the arguments, I have to admit, in both cases are somewhat circular. Whatever you already assume about Balrog wings is going to turn out to be true based on your interpretation of those two lines. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So let's start by looking at some of the pro-wing arguments. Let's see what yeah. we come up with. First, let's take a closer look at the literal interpretation of the second half of this earlier reading. The idea that its wings were spread from wall to wall must refer to literal wings and couldn't possibly be metaphorical. That if it was a metaphor, maybe Tolkien would have written, and its wings like shadow were spread or something else well, that. Well, that would be a simile, but yeah. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Now, while there are a lot of examples of metaphors that we could use to shut this one down, let's go to something earlier in this chapter when it said that Gandalf came flying down the steps and fell to the uh -huh. ground. I remember pointing it this out at the time. It doesn't say Gandalf appeared to come flying down. And arguably it would, it, again, I think it would sort of break the, the dramatic effect of the passage if he did. But right. no one would seriously read that as suggesting Gandalf has the power to fly and right. chose this particular moment to suddenly demonstrate <laughs> that ability. Pretty odd moment to decide to show yeah, that one like, Oh, he, he has wings. Oh, wow. It's like Who when R2-D2 suddenly has jets in like episode yeah, two or something Yeah, and can like climb that. over like, little really? obstacles on the ground. Right. When did yeah. that happen? Right. So can we mention one other metaphor, though? Because, well, I like this one because it also is about wings. Mm. In The Passing of the Great Company, Aragorn recalls the words of Malbeth the Seer, who says, over the land, there lies a long shadow, westward reaching wings of darkness. So, um, yeah, wings, darkness, shadow, just saying. Yeah. So once again, literal darkness referred to yeah. as being like wings. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Not literal wings. No. Now, the other big pro-wing argument is a line from Morgoth's Ring. It's an early variant of the passage describing how Balrogs came to save Melkor from his Awful date with Ungoliant. <laughs> this is that emergency text to your friend. Dude, rescue me, man. I get Guys, save here. me, please. Yeah, I need, I need out of here. Swiftly they arose, and they passed with winged speed over Hithlam, and they came to Lammoth as a tempest of fire. Now, the argument is that the Balrogs arose, meaning went up into the air, and that they passed over the land. Right. And did so with winged speed, which people say, oh, well, clearly they're above the land they're flying. They must be winged. Right. But there are plenty of other examples of Tolkien using these phrases or similar phrases referring to entities that we can all agree are clearly land bound. Sure. Later on, we'll see that the lady arose and Celeborn led them back. Okay. Galadriel did not sprout wings and fly. <laughs> no, she didn't. Or 
at length they, this is referring to Aragorn and others, arose and took their leave of Eowyn. Mm-hmm. Or, and Aragorn arose and went out, and he sent for the sons of Elrond. There's nothing that suggests that the word arose requires actual flight or no. wings. And I think people would think it's ridiculous Weird to say they, that they did. <laughs> exactly. But then we have the passing over bit. Now, to counter this, I'm actually going to read more than I have to because, well, you'll understand. Then Fingolfin beheld, as it seemed to him, the utter ruin of the Noldor and the defeat beyond redress of all their houses. And filled with wrath and despair, he mounted upon Rochalor, his great horse, and rode forth alone, and none might restrain him. He passed over Dor Nufaugleth like a wind amid the dust. I'm going to read that again. He passed over Dor Nufaugleth like a wind amid the dust. And all that beheld his onset fled in amaze, thinking that Orome himself was come, for a great madness of rage was upon him, so that his eyes shone like the eyes of the Valar. Now, okay, I read more than I have to because Fingolfin. Yeah, we'll allow it. Uh, well, thank you. But you caught the important part, right? The part I read twice. He passed over Dor Nufaugleth like a wind amid the dust, but he was mm-hmm. on a horse. On the ground. I mean, clearly. So, again, passing over. You mean Rohalor wasn't a Pegasus? No, he wasn't. Wouldn't that have been nice? (laughs) We also have this passage from the disaster of the Gladden Fields. Of their journey, nothing is told until they had passed over the Daggerlad and on northward. Or from the return of the king. The road had bent a little northward, and the stretch that they had passed over was now screened from sight. So, passed over does not mean they actually passed over on a different plane. Right. Right. Well, now let's get to that W word, winged speed, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is certainly a metaphor. A metaphor is, I think people probably know, the application of a name or descriptive term or phrase to an object or action to which it is imaginatively but not literally applicable. There you go. So unless speed itself can literally have wings, and I don't think anyone wants to make that argument. Ooh, winged can I have speed, that argument, please? I'd like to make that argument. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> winged speed is a metaphor. I just want people to to know, to understand that that participle applies to speed, not to the creatures. Right. That is correct. Now, we've also seen the phrase tempest of fire argued as definitive of the Balrog's literal flight. Remember, they came to Lammoth as a tempest of fire. But a storm can still quite easily be metaphorical. It doesn't have to be a literal airborne storm. Aragorn says, when the Rohirrim are fleeing to Helm's Deep, would that it were daylight and we might ride down upon them like a storm from the mountain. So, Mm -hmm. no, that, that proves nothing either. Right. So here's the thing. At the end of the day, the pro-wings interpretation of the text in our chapter, it really only works if you already assume that the Balrogs have wings. Right. It's a purely circular argument, and there is no textual evidence to support the conclusion as anything more than speculative. That's just plainly there in the text. That just is. There's nothing that we can, the pro-wings argument can say to provide anything beyond the fact that it's a circular argument with no textual evidence. But but here's where we have to confess there's nothing that really proves beyond all doubt that Balrogs have wings. We just believe the evidence is much stronger for this position, and here are a few reasons why. We already know that there are precisely zero mentions of Balrogs taking flight in any of Tolkien's works, even when it would be pretty helpful to avoid, I don't know, plummeting to your death. (laughs) Uh, we, We don't need to go through the reams of evidence because you already know about them. Durin's bane dies when Gandalf says he threw down my enemy and he fell from the high place and broke the mountainside where he smote it in his ruin. A phrase I absolutely love, by the way. When I die, I want to die smiting something in my ruin, really. Yeah, throwing down your enemy. making That's the best way to go. Yeah. Or in the Silmarillion, when Glorfindel and the Balrog duel upon a pinnacle of rock in that high place and both fell to ruin in the abyss. Or the times when it would have been helpful to have flying Balrogs, like trying to locate Gondolin. 
And remember that in the Silmarillion, we learned that Morgoth loosed upon his foes the last desperate assault that he had prepared. And out of the pits of Angband, there issued the winged dragons that had not before been seen. For until that day, no creatures of his cruel thought had yet assailed the air. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. clear that the Balrogs are not an air power. Now, the counter arguments to that are usually twofold. Either one, they were prevented from using their wings, you know, like mm -hmm. Durin's Bane's wings were so big he couldn't use them in the tight space on the bridge, or right. the one that fell with Glorfindel had damaged wings. Ugh. Or two, that they have wings, but they're still flightless, like ostriches or penguins. Okay. Now, the first counter argument about size defeats itself when you look at the earlier textual evidence about the size of the chamber of Mazarbul and the doorway, and how the Balrog yeah. somehow managed to get into that tiny doorway, even with a wingspan approaching that of a small airliner. Right. I mean, it, it, that goes into a lot of math and a lot about the yeah. size of the room and the fact that yeah. his, his wings spread from wall to wall. Yeah, yeah. And the fact, and, and then, you know, how big a creature has to be to sustain wings of a certain size. We're not going to get that far into the weeds today. But it suffices to say that the argument defeats itself simply based on the size of yeah. the spaces the Balrog the, has already been. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, the second argument is interesting, this idea that they have wings, but they're still flightless. Honestly, though, it doesn't make a lot of sense because flightless birds still have wings because they are by nature birds. They are just birds that lost <laughs> flight through the process of evolution. Now, if Balrogs, Balrogs have age, not, Balrogs have not right. evolved. They've not right. evolved. That's not right. the point here. They haven't devolved or evolved. Now, right. if Balrogs of the first age had flight, and the question was whether Durin's Bane still had wings but couldn't fly, we might be able to take seriously that parallel of a flightless bird. But sure. Balrogs were never birds in the first place, and the truth is, vestigial appendages are vestigial only because they were once but no longer used. Right. That's so what vestigial that doesn't fly. is. Yeah. Quite yeah. literally, that doesn't fly. Yeah. yeah nice. <laughs> I didn't even mean now, to do that, but it was brilliant. <laughs> it was. Now, there's one last argument that you sometimes hear. Well, Balrogs are Maiar. Therefore, they either, A, have the ability to change their raiment at will. So mm -hmm. maybe sometimes they have wings and sometimes they don't. Sometimes you feel like some wings. Sometimes, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you don't. Because. <laughs> Sorry, a little almond joy, a little mounds there for you. Yeah, exactly. Or B, that some Balrogs had wings and some didn't because they each chose their own raiment. Now, look, I'm sorry. That second argument is totally irrelevant. I mean, as yeah, we discussed, yeah. Tolkien's later idea was that there shouldn't be more than a few Balrogs in the world ever. And yeah. the few Balrogs that we see have no wings. So there's right. not reason to believe that there's some Balrog out there who's never shown or described who might theoretically have wings or four arms or two heads or some spiky things going down his back. I, yeah. If there's one out there like that, it frankly has no bearing on whether the Balrogs we know from the text have them or not. On whether this Balrog, this Durin's Balrog. Bane, or the Balrog right. on the mountain that fought Glorfindel, both of whom right. plummeted to their deaths, right. have them or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as for the first argument, I don't believe that Balrogs would still be able to change their raiment based on what we know about the way Einar and raiment works right. among the... Let's, let's call them the evil Ainur. Mm -hmm. We know that Morgoth and Sauron can no longer change their raiment because mm -hmm. they've invested so much of their power into physical objects. Right. But the Osanwe Kenta essay, which surprisingly has some interesting insights on this, says that the ability to change one's raiment can also be lost because of the great evils that, for example, Morgoth right. did in the visible body. Yeah. So it, and it even says, so it was also with even some of his greatest servants as in these later days we see. 
they became wedded to the forms of their evil deeds. Oh, wow, that's spot on. Yeah, yeah, it is. Now, the narrator, Pengalov, in, in that particular essay, he seems to be referring to at least Sauron there. Mm-hmm. But the reference to some of his greatest servants suggests that this applies to others as well. Strongly suggests, frankly. Mm-hmm. And it makes perfect sense with the way we've seen Tolkien deal with raiment shifting. Yeah. You know, yeah, the so. more time you spend corrupting yourself, the more right. time you spend, and even the more time you spend just sort of doing worldly things. We see that with yeah. Melian and how she yeah. was, she was trapped. part of the world, uh, right. Yeah, she was trapped in her raiment yeah. and she yeah. was good. The chains and, and, and trammels of Arda, right. Yeah, that's, that's the phrase I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. We see that this happens. Being, being in the world for a longer mm-hmm. time and especially doing evil things in the world. Yeah. Yeah. traps you to the raiment that you're in. And so I right. just don't buy that the Balrogs, oh, today Durin's Bane is going to pull out some wings to he fight the He wakes up in the morning, he checks his calendar, oh, today's He's a like, wing day. We got, okay, we got a wizard and eight other guys coming through here. I, I think I'm going to do some wings here. I better I think sprout the, my rings today. I think yeah. the wings are really going to sell this look right now. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I know it. they're still flightless, right? I, I right, yeah, that, yeah. But. But they'll be intimidating. They'll add to that intimidation. Sure, factor. sure, yeah. Never mind I that I already have man, a fear I got the wings, and terror. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, Look, sorry. The, the fact of the matter is this comes down to Occam's razor in many ways. We yep. have to develop incredibly complicated theories about the wings of a Balrog in order for them to exist in Tolkien's universe. Uh, frankly, we have to come up with conspiracy theory level type complicated theories. You got Pinning like the, the red, red thumbtacks in the wall the, and, the, the and the string and the, connecting them. And the yeah. pictures. and the, Yeah. But the truth is, after reading the rest of the Legendarium and digging through it for bits about Balrogs, we find that the simplest, cleanest, I dare say easiest solution is to conclude that they do not have wings. Absolutely. At the end of the day, given how descriptive Tolkien was in terms of, well, everything, <laughs> the fact that he didn't explicitly describe the Balrog as having wings especially since the wings would have to be more than 100 feet wide to spread from wall to wall. In this space, yeah. In this space. It only makes sense to conclude that they didn't. The wings would be the largest, the most obvious characteristic. And to ignore them at every appearance of the Balrogs through the entire Legendarium? Well, that would be inconsistent with everything we know about how Tolkien created his world. Couldn't agree more. I hate to do it again, because we're always agreeing. I know, that's true. Wouldn't it be nice if we were on different sides of this one? Yeah. It would. I don't know if we would have lasted this long if we were on different sides of the Balrog wings. Or no, argument. that's true. Probably not. No, I could not possibly agree more. I think that wraps it up as far as I'm concerned. Uh, hopefully we've convinced some folks out there. If not, I, I know that, you know, we've we've already discussed the fact that there's no 100% clear proof without beyond no. a shadow of a doubt either way. But I think, as you've said, Alan, I think and I suppose just... there's no 100 percent beyond the shadow of the doubt evidence that we landed on the moon and that the Earth is actually spherical <laughs> in nature. No 100 yeah, percent beyond the shadow yeah. of the doubt. Uh, you know? you're, you're, yeah. I, I, and because of that, yeah. the argument that the Earth is flat still exists, just like the right. argument that Balrogs like have the argument that we never exists. landed on the moon still exists. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is true. You you really do have to jump through some hoops. Yeah. To to land on Balrogs having wings. I'm sorry, yeah, you really but do. it's just. That's just what it is. It stretches logic beyond really yeah. what it can take. Yeah, it does. So, okay, enough about wings. 
I think we really are finally done with that. And I think we are. I'm we sure we'll come to back bed. to it someday. But I think, oh, we've, yes. I think we've done all the work we can on it. We've put now, those wings in a basket and doused them with buffalo sauce. We are done. Mmm, <laughs> tasty wings. <laughs> but now, on to other more pressing questions, because I can hear people saying, all right, guys, enough about the wings. What about yeah, the real fine. question? Is Durin's Bane in league with Sauron? That is a good question. Arguably a more interesting question. And a more important question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More important question for sure. And remember, we talked about this a few episodes ago with the Watcher in the Water. At the time, we concluded that the Watcher was apparently in league with the denizens of Moria, up to and including mm-hmm. the Balrog, who seems to be the apex monster in the mountain. Yeah, he's here. the boss. Nothing happens without him, I'm sure. Right. But does that mean that they're all in league with Sauron? Now, I'm going to admit, I used to think that he wasn't. I, I right. used to think that the Balrog was just doing his own thing under here. And as support for that, I cited letter number 175, in which Tolkien said, Cannot people imagine things hostile to men and hobbits who prey on them without being in league with the devil? That's right. Now, I remember that. that letter was specifically in response to the idea that Old Man Willow was an ally of Sauron, which Tolkien right. was completely shattering with that letter. Absolutely. Now, many of our listeners have asked the same question. Our old friend Tanya in New York reminded us that most of the really evil things, which Old Man Willow arguably is not, he's just a really angry tree, uh, kind of like that yeah. hard cider ad, right? You know, uh, Angry Orchard, <laughs> angry right? Orchard. the old forest, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, most of the really evil things were being drawn to Sauron in the Third Age. And we get this from Atropata. But ever the shadow in Mirkwood grew deeper. I should probably say for those who just joined us, Otrapata is of the Rings of Power in the Third Age. It's the final epilogue in the Silmarillion. So There you go. We've gotten a few gripes about here and there where we haven't spelled out our acronyms because we've used them for so long. So from that we get, but ever the shadow in Mirkwood grew deeper. And to Dol Guldur, evil things repaired out of all the dark places of the world, and they were united again under one will, and their malice was directed against the elves and the survivors of Numenor. Dark Places of the World sure does sound like a reference to Moria and Durin's Bane. It, it really does. Now, some people, including yours truly in the past, have said that Sauron couldn't possibly control Balrogs. I mean, they're all Maiar. And mm-hmm. as we've seen, the Balrogs are the OG fallen Maiar. Right. They I, fell even before Sauron did. Before Sauron did. So I'm like, they're not going to take orders from Myron, that guy who used to run with Aule's <laughs> crew, who used to sing about jewelry in the music. Oh, man, that's great. Right? I mean, who? My, no, yeah. Myron, I'm not following you. Sorry. Yeah, but I'm yeah. Sauron now. No. <laughs> I'm King Excellent. No. I'm that's sorry. right. I'm, I'm King Excellent. That's where, I re- that's where I used to land on it. But maybe mm. I was wrong about that. First of all, not all the Ainur, including not all the Maiar, were created equal. That's true. And of the Maiar who followed Melkor, we are told in Valaquenta that the greatest was that spirit whom the Eldar called Sauron, or Gorthaur the Cruel. So, Maybe Sauron is powerful enough to command the allegiance of the Balrogs. Maybe. In fact, Otrapada says that Sauron commanded all the things that used to follow Morgoth after Morgoth's defeat. Here's the text. Now Sauron's lust and pride increased until he knew no bounds, and he determined to make himself master of all things in Middle-earth. He brooked no freedom nor any rivalry, and he gathered again under his government all the evil things of the days of Morgoth that remained on earth or beneath it, and the orcs were at his command and multiplied like flies. <laughs> Can we please stop talking about orcs multiplying? Seriously, multiplied earlier, up, it was uh, spawning, and now it's multiplied it's like flies. coming up way too often on this way podcast lately. too much. It is not that wow, kind wow. of podcast, folks. No, no, it's not. No. You. Just do. You. 
But I think perhaps the most persuasive evidence comes from the appendices to the Lord of the Rings itself. Yeah. Appendix A says this about the coming of Durin's Bane. The dwarves delved deep at that time, seeking beneath Barazinbar for Mithril, the metal beyond price that was becoming yearly ever harder to win. Thus they roused from sleep a thing of terror that, flying from Thangaradrim, had lain hidden at the foundations of the earth since the coming of the host to the west, a Balrog of Morgoth. Mm. Now next to roused from sleep, there's a footnote, or released from prison. It may well be that it had already been awakened by the malice of Sauron. Mm. And finally, Appendix B tells us that in Third Age 2480, Sauron begins to people Moria with his creatures. Now that's not definitive, but it raises the question of why Sauron would send his creatures to Moria if there was a rival fallen Maya there that he didn't control. Right. So there is lots of evidence there to suggest that Sauron was aware of and relying on the Balrog to do what mm -hmm. Sauron wanted it to do. Yeah, I have to concede on that. That's probably where we're at. I, I don't think it's a direct command like, you know, with the Witch King, for instance, where he's a right-hand man. Yeah. I don't think there's that level of control. I, I think that might be it. I think he probably is commanding Durin's Bane. I don't think he can control him. Right. I, I think this is more like, if you think about the role the Hulk plays in the Avengers... Oh, yeah, yeah. Like in like in the early movies. I'm a right. movie guy, not a comic guy. I don't know the comics, but like thinking of the early movies where you just they send him out there but they can't control him. Right. Or Mongo he's... from Blazing Saddles, you know, like you send him. In. <laughs> he's like the you oh, know, that's a great he's one. the big guy you send in to cause some trouble, but you know you can't really no. control him. He's yeah, kind of like I would lean more towards that. I think yeah. Sauron knows that this is a dangerous ally and he's more mm -hmm. of an ally than a a subordinate. I think might be a better way to put it that it's not it's not so much that he's truly subordinate to Sauron, even though we know that Sauron commands all these things. Mm -hmm. I think it's it, the Balrog at least would see himself more like a peer. And yeah, there is a risk, in and maybe sees Balrog Sauron as having more power, and so I'm going to I'm going to work yeah. with Sauron for now. Right, but if I do get the ring, maybe I won't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, if there's that much thought, going I think, on, and right? I think that's a really I think that's a really good point to raise. If the Balrog yeah. had somehow gotten his hands on the ring. Yeah, he would not mm. have gone back to Barad-dur and given it to Sauron. No, he's not like the, the the Witch King of Angmar no, who would have returned not. it. No, absolutely right. not. So then the question then is: Are all of them, including the Watcher, then directly or indirectly working for Sauron? I think potentially indirectly. Yeah, indirectly. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't yeah. know that the Watcher has any direct connection to Sauron, other than perhaps no. he was. I think the Watcher is probably more working with the Balrog. Right. Maybe right. not working for the Balrog, but we saw how the Watcher trapped them in Moria. Yeah. Well, and then there's the idea that the Watcher, this is actually a point that a listener raised and made a really great logical connection here that I hadn't thought mm -hmm. about. The Watcher in the water, th that area had to be dammed first for the lake to exist before the Watcher was there. Mm -hmm. Somebody mm -hmm. dammed that lake before yeah. the Watcher arrived, because unless the Watcher's amphibious, <laughs> dams <laughs> it up while he's in the air and then waits for the water to show up. I doubt that. I mean, he's a cephalopod-type creature, so he's definitely a water creature. Mm -hmm. But that means somebody did that first in order for the Watcher to have a safe, you know, watery place to be. Yeah. Uh, so that means there's some cooperation for sure. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. I, we'll never establish a clear chain of command here. And no. I doubt no, that there is one. I, I don't think that... No, this I don't is think chaos. that the big bads of Middle-earth work that way. No, I think they that absolutely don't. Yeah. So... Yeah. Watcher's going to do what Watcher's going to do. Balrog's going to do what Balrog's going to do. That's what they <laughs> absolutely. do. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But that does beg the question then. So when the Watcher went after Frodo, was he going for the ring? 
drawn by the the lure of the ring, perhaps, but but not going know. for it, not going, not going for, for it with it the intent orders. to give it back to Sauron, or even uh, let me check. Let was. me check my wanted sheet. Um, right, right. Small Hobbit wearing green chain yep. around his neck. Uh, that's the one right there. I'm going to grab him. No, that's that's clearly not happening. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is yeah. drawn by the ring, drawn mm-hmm. by the evil of the ring. The way we saw a lot of evil things were drawn by right. Evil's just drawn to it, no, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So not, not working for Sauron, but certainly all aware of each in, other. Pointing in the same direction, right? Yeah, going in the exactly. same, yeah, in the same ballpark, working for the same purposes. Yeah. All right. Awesome stuff. Well, that might be the longest sidebar we've ever spent. I think great. so. I think it is. And now and we're going to finish up the chapter. I, th- I hope they are, we too. We still have more reading go- to do, don't we? We yeah. do. We have some more reading, so I'm going to have you finish up the chapter for us, and we'll discuss that before uh, wrap it up. Okay. The fires went out, and blank darkness fell. The company stood rooted with horror, staring into the pit. Even as Aragorn and Boromir came flying back, the rest of the bridge cracked and fell. With a cry, Aragorn roused them. Come, I will lead you now, he called. We must obey his last command. Follow me. They stumbled wildly up the great stairs beyond the door, Aragorn leading, Boromir at the rear. At the top was a wide, echoing passage. Along this they fled. Frodo heard Sam at his side weeping, and then he found that he himself was weeping as he ran. Doom. 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 The drum beats rolled behind, mournful now and slow. Doom. They ran on. The light grew before them. Great shafts pierced the roof. They ran swifter. They passed into a hall, bright with daylight from its high windows in the east. They fled across it. Through its huge, broken doors they passed, and suddenly before them the great gates opened, an arch of blazing light. There was a guard of orcs crouching in the shadows behind the great doorposts, towering on either side, but the gates were shattered and cast down. Aragorn smote to the ground the captain that stood in his path, and the rest fled in terror of his wrath. The company swept past them and took no heed of them. Out of the gates they ran and sprang down the huge and age-worn steps, the threshold of Moria. Thus at last they came beyond hope under the sky and felt the wind on their faces. They did not halt until they were out of bowshot from the walls. Dimraldale lay about them. The shadow of the misty mountains lay upon it, but eastwards there was a golden light on the land. It was but one hour afternoon. The sun was shining. The clouds were white and high. They looked back. Dark yawned the archway of the gates under the mountain shadow. Faint and far beneath the earth rolled the slow drum beats. Doom. A thin black smoke trailed out. Nothing else was to be seen. The dale all around was empty. Doom. Grief at last wholly overcame them, and they wept long some standing and silent, some cast upon the ground. Doom. Doom. The drumbeats faded. Oh, man. Oh, what an overwhelmingly emotional moment that is. Yeah. Thank you for the chance to read that passage. That's such yeah, a no powerful problem. passage. It really is. I mean, I, I knew I had to decide. I'm like, all right. I could either get this really cool, dramatic passage, or I could get the face off, and I, I had to take the face yeah, off. Of course, yeah. but it meant giving you this. Uh, not to mention the arrival of the Balrog, but yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about this really amazing passage. This sort of 
denouement, if you will, of this scene, right? I mean, this is, mm-hmm. as this crisis, as this climax has drawn to its end, now we have this, this after, this after effect, you know, what's yeah. going on now. This is so, the moment of sinking in of what's just happened. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They got to absorb this, this mm-hmm. thing, this unbelievable and, and literally unbelievable thing. They, not only did they ever ex- not expect to see a Balrog, those who even know what that was. Right. But they certainly never expected they don't expect to, to see Gandalf, Gandalf fall. No. He's How do you the lose one Gandalf? in their company I mean, that you can yeah. never lose. Right. You know, he's not only the most indispensable, he's the most indefeatable, if right. you want to put it that way. And, yeah. Right. To the hobbits so, especially, this has to oh, be just inconceivable to them. Inconceivable in the truest fall. sense of the word. I, I mean, mm-hmm. we've abused that word so many times. But, <laughs> yeah. Thanks to Vizzini, yeah. <laughs> I know. But no, it is literally inconceivable to the hobbits. You could never have even thought that this would happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So darkness falls. The fires are extinguished. Mm-hmm. Now, the rest of the bridge falls as Aragorn and Boromir come back, and Aragorn mm-hmm. rightly assumes the lead, and immediately his first thing is, let's follow the yeah. last advice of Gandalf. Gandalf no time fly, to stop and mourn now. We got to no. get out of here. Yeah. We got to do it. We got to get out now. Mm-hmm. Boromir wisely bringing up the rear. That's his job. Uh, you know, he's going to protect. He's the second kind of in command, so to speak, right mm-hmm. now, if you want to put it that way. I think that's who mm-hmm. Aragorn would, would want to put in that position. Yeah. Just what a moment we, as they run. Yeah. And we find ourselves very poignantly in the point of view of Frodo again. Yes. Here, yes. As Frodo first hears Sam weeping and then suddenly realizes he's weeping too. Oh, I know. Wow. My heart just, yeah. I know. I know. And the drums, the drums even seem mournful. Yeah. That was interesting. I wonder about this. I, I don't know that the drums are literally mournful. Are they... I don't know if the drums yeah. are Yeah, is that like how Frodo's orchestra. hearing it, or are they literally yeah. like a mournful? I, I think it's Frodo's perception of mournfulness. Like Knowing I, how yeah. the orcs are afraid of the Balrog, I don't think the They're orcs not are mourning like, the fall of the Balrog. Like, oh, DB, he went down. You know, I don't oh, think it's no, that. Oh, no, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think this that. is Frodo's perception. I think you're for right. sure. I yeah. agree. So we start getting some more light as they get into the first hall. It must be pretty eye-piercingly bright. Considering yeah, it's how one, long it's one been. of those when you suddenly see light, bright light oh, after being in darkness. Your eyes for a just long time. squint yeah. because you've been in darkness mm-hmm. for days. Uh, they get to the great gates, and there's a last group of orcs. But I love mm-hmm. this. This is just a momentarily <laughs> thing. Just Aragorn, like, leader, nope, gone. Dead. Yeah. <laughs> one shot, one kill. I love it. Exactly. Kills the captain and the rest, as orcs often do, flee. Yes, they do. Or fly, as the case may be. <laughs> Sans wings, just to right. say. Because we haven't beat that horse enough. No, that 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 horse is not dead at all yet. No. Uh, and the fellowship it's barely, escapes. Or, it's barely horse shaped anymore. <laughs> it's, its carcass is just—it's just a pulp at this point. We've beaten it so badly. <laughs> we have. But the fellowship escapes. They escape Moria beyond hope. Yeah. And yeah. They don't stop moving until they're well into the Dimmerald Dale. Yeah. And sort of catastrophic. See... There, really, beyond hope. This is something they never oh, yeah, thought sure. they would be able yeah. to to accomplish. Absolutely. Yeah. The light after darkness that comes, yeah. that comes beyond hope. Yeah. Pretty poignant. It and really we is. see that it's one o'clock in the afternoon mm-hmm. and we see this golden light, high white clouds. I mean, it, it really is the, you know, you think about Verlin Flieger and, and the way she loves to, oh, to talk yeah. about the antitheses of light and dark. This is that moment here. This is. They, they've escaped from the darkest place against the yeah. darkest foe and the darkest thing. Gandalf's death has, has happened yeah. to them. And they get outside and suddenly, oh, oh, there is still light in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a beautiful moment. It really is. They look back at the gates and they, you know, they still see this thin oh, smoke man. trailing out and that's it. Mm-hmm. Nothing else that to is. see. And the drum beats fade. And then, 
And then that's when the emotion hits them. The grief just mm-hmm. overcomes them completely, wholly overcomes mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And they weep. As, as I, these few last dooms come out oh, from below the goodness. ground. <laughs> that is such a, a poignant moment. And you just feel, especially for the hobbits, I think, at this point, but also for Aragorn, I think that's where I go to. And here's this guy who who knows Gandalf better than any of the others and who now has to lead the group. Yeah. And so he can't really be seen to be mourning as much right. as these others. He has to maintain control. Right. Oh, man, what a hard spot to be put in. But he's yeah. he's going to be, you know, weeping and feeling grief just like the rest of them because, you know, he's Gandalf's his friend. He's, he's known Gandalf for a back. long time. Right. He and Gandalf right. have hunted together. They've known each other for yeah. a long time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Boy, this is a heavy, heavy moment for the company. It for is. The, the eight remaining in the company. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, the dale all around may be empty, but the common room certainly isn't. We've got Barlowin's bag coming your way in just a minute, granted an abbreviated version. But when that's done, the talk continues all night long at the Prancing Pony. That's right. We've always got lots of discussion happening in our social media spaces. At our common room on Facebook, you'll find comments, questions, corrections, and more on every episode, as well as updates from us throughout the week. Just look for the Prancing Pony podcast on Facebook and click the like and follow buttons. And now we have another common room over on Reddit. You can find some great discussions there at r slash prancingponypod. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at prancingponypod. So follow us wherever you might be. And if you like us, share us on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, anywhere you can find Tolkien fans. And if you really want to let the world know your feelings about us, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more visible our podcast is, and that helps others find us and this great community of Tolkien fans we've built together. And finally, if you'd like access to exclusive content like postscripts, quarterly specials, PPP swag, and more, then check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod to find out how you can join the fellowship of the podcast. Now, I think it's time to see what old Bartleman has in the mailbag for us. Sean? All right. Well, I know we're already running long, so we're just going to get to one quick one here today. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is a follow-up on our conversation from episode 157 about the ill will of Karadras and the idea that that was a, a Melkor ingredient left over from Melkor's right. rising of the Misty Mountains. Mm-hmm. Kevin H. in New York actually wrote to us after we recorded that episode, but before mm-hmm. we released it. So he hasn't had a chance to hear that yet. He actually oh, came right. to us with this after listening to episode 154. And we just didn't get it in time to include it in 157. Right. He said, I was struck by the potency of a certain passage. When the narrator hinted of an outside agency controlling the weather, he continued by describing how the wind had died, the water has disappeared, and all signs of life were absent, red barren rock, and so on. According to Kevin, he sees this as the absence of Manway, wind, Ulmo, water, and Aule and Yavanna, earth and wildlife. Kevin says this passage speaks to the growing potency of Melkor's agent here in Middle-earth. He means Sauron, but going on from our discussion in 157, I'd say potentially also just this remnant of Melkor himself in the mountain. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Kevin says, it is subtle, but do you think this is intentional? Wow, the image is striking. Uh, Let's go back and read the passage itself. The morning was passing towards noon, and still the company wandered and scrambled in a barren country of red stones. Nowhere could they see any gleam of water or hear any sound of it. All was bleak and dry. Their hearts sank. They saw no living thing, and not a bird was in the sky, but what the night would bring if it caught them in that lost land, none of them cared to think. Yeah. Now, it's hard to know whether Tolkien intended it or not. I have to admit, I'd lean towards saying he probably didn't intend it, 
But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it's in, I mean, I can't prove that, but no. even if he did intend it or didn't intend it, that doesn't mean it's invalid for us as readers to find some symbolism in it, knowing what we right. know about the larger Middle-earth legendarium. I mean, I think this is one of those situations where even if Tolkien didn't intend it, what we know of the legendarium from reading the Silmarillion and, and other works, especially when we're thinking about these sort of elemental uh, right. alignments of, of some of the Valar, I think that definitely changes the perception we have about this scene as readers. And, and I think that's a really interesting, and I think it's a really awesome catch by Kevin, whether yeah. Tolkien intended it or not. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the tough part. I don't think, like with you, I don't think this is an intentional callback mm-hmm. to those elemental natures, mostly because of the presence of Alley. Uh, Alley's, you know, rock and earth, and there is still barren rock. It's, it's not a healthy earth. Yavanna's not there. Uh, but, but Alley and rock, I mean, this is all Alley. Right this, is Al- so, this is Alley's territory. That's true. Yeah. I, and it kind of reminded me, the description of the landscape kind of reminded me of what we saw with the desolation of Smaug. And mm. I don't think we're dealing there with an absence of, you know, what the, the Valar and yeah. the powers so much as we are dealing with a localized phenomenon. Yeah. That's related to, you know, a creature or a set of creatures in this case. A, so, a corruptive force, a corruptive creature. Right. That, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, does that make this any less interesting? No, not at all. I think it is a fascinating observation Yep. Uh, that wind and water and life are gone here. I really mm-hmm. do. Definitely. Thanks for that great insight, Kevin. We really appreciate that and a chance to talk about it briefly. Well, folks, after a very long time, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Please be sure to join us again next week for our fifth annual Tolkien Reading Day special. Wow. I can't believe this is going to be our fifth one of those, man. No. It's really, really cool. It's so fun to do every year. And this year's theme is nature and industry. So you can bet we have some great stuff to read on that. Oh, don't be hasty now, but uh, we'll try. (laughs) As always, folks, we want to thank each of you for listening. And we also want to give a very special thank you to our patrons at the Keardance Contribution Tier. It's Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, Chad in Texas, Lance in New Jersey, Paul in Colorado, Jerry in Texas, Bruce in California, Mario in Utah, Seth in Texas, Ella in California, and Joseph in Texas. Thank you all so very much. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, and most of all, your unconditional surrender regarding the matter of Balrog Wings to Parliament at the PrancingPonyPodcast.com. <laughs> Barlaman is never punctual with the mail, and with each passing week, he gets less and less punctual. I think he's really True. tired of us all, always talking about how not punctual he is. But <laughs> he's going to show us, yeah. He is. But we will get back to you as soon as he lets us. And your yeah, comment you or question may be featured on an upcoming show. Well, this has been far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends. <laughs>